special edition of Rank and Review. This episode, current champion Mr. Lee Beckman and your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, that's me, are going to talk about six films from one of the greatest living filmmakers we have, Mr. Martin Scorsese. I've been a fan of him for as long as I remember watching movies, but I always have felt that it's interesting that he chooses such weird subject matters. It's, he's such an amazing filmmaker, I wonder why he always tells tales of people who are absolutely abhorrent people. But let's give him this. He makes entertaining movies about awful people. He's also one of Mr. Beckman's favorite filmmakers, so it shall be interesting to see how these titles line up. Please let me know what you think of Mr. Scorsese or about my rank by writing me at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. As usual, this podcast will contain coarse language and it will contain spoilers, so be prepared for that. If you enjoy Rank and Review, I think you'll also enjoy the Terror Table podcast. So check out the Terror Table podcast wherever good podcasts are found. Thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review. I hope you continue to do so. And please, please, please tell your friend. So, welcome once again and current champion of Rank and Review, Mr. Lee Beckman. The crowd goes wild. Um, I haven't done a lot of like episodes of Rank and Review that are specifically dedicated to a director. Or, yeah. or, but with the exception of the Coen Brothers episode, every time I do, it does seem to be with you, Mr. Beckman. We've talked about uh, John Carpenter in the past. We've talked about Wes Craven in the past. Um, George A. Romero. And we talked about George Romero, thank you, in the past. So, But this one's different, because I don't think you could really call Scorsese a horror or a genre-necessary director. No, no, he more devils in drama and religious films. Tragedies, a lot of the time, I've yeah. been sort of noting. Um, especially, there's a sort of a theme through this. Um, there's so much to admire and respect about Martin Scorsese. It's ridiculous. Yeah. He's very prolific. Yes. His filmography is very diverse. Yes. Um, 
but he sort of has the the two halves of himself too the same way that like we've talked about on the show before like Spielberg has sort of two directors in him there's the popcorn Spielberg yeah and there's like the historic sort of history lesson serious minded Spielberg yeah there's sort of like the the crime drama Scorsese yeah and then there's sort of the uh, spiritual exploration, Scorsese. Well, his faith is a huge, huge part of his movies. Even the ones that might be sort of genre entries like Cape Fear have huge, huge religious imagery. Uh, I don't even want to say undertones. I would say overtones. Like, Scorsese is one of the most earnest, serious filmmakers out there. He's definitely one of America's greatest. Um, anyone who says different... Uh, uh, I'd be slapping people. I mean, by the fact of his name, he can surround himself with very talented people. Yes. I, I find a lot of directors do certain things very well. Like, yes. we can say Terrence Malick makes beautiful you, movies. Yes. Um, we can say, uh, I don't know, like, Steven Spielberg makes, like, exciting, energetic movies. Yes. We can say that uh, Kubrick makes hypnotizing movies. Yeah. For me, what Scorsese does is he can use all of those descriptors at once, but he, yeah. he almost better than anyone, like almost better than anyone I can think of, yeah. can focus those to help him tell a story. Yeah. It's not just about how beautiful that image is. Yeah. It's how beautiful that image is and how that helps the story. Yeah. Uh, whereas I think sometimes Malick can get lost in that, right? Yeah. yeah. Whereas, uh, or, or in a way, Kubrick is so great at handling tone and sort of manipulating you that that can sort of overtake story. Yeah. I think that Scorsese cares about story a yeah. lot. Yeah. And uh, I respect that. <laughs> I respect that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it would be an interesting thing to do maybe someday on Rank and Review to do like a list of our favorite directors because it would be hard to do like a top 10 list of my favorite directors. Yeah. It would be hard pressed for me not to say that the Coen brothers weren't my favorite. I just, yeah. that's my knee-jerk reaction. Yeah. But Scorsese might be my number two. Yeah, yeah. The word genius gets battered around <laughs> way too much in, in, least in, well, today's society. But if you want to talk about film and genius, Martin Scorsese is one of those gut reaction answers. Yeah. Um, like, I once saw a documentary on just, like, like the flats, like the, 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 the background scene paintings uh, throughout history. And Martin Scorsese was the narrator. Like, he, it was one of his pet projects. And he made even that. Interesting. Really interesting where I couldn't stop watching it because you saw some beautiful paintings in the background of all that, you know, musicals and westerns and whatnot. This man knows, like, everything about film. They say that Tarantino is, you know, sort of off the charts knowledgeable about film. Well, so Scorsese. And I think he's far classier than Tarantino. Well, not to compare myself to Tarantino, but <laughs> I think Tarantino, like myself, is really uh, film literate about yeah. film of his own generation. Yeah. The shit that he loved growing up, he yeah. really fucking loved growing up, right? Yeah. Uh, but Scorsese's got this sort of like hyper film lit, you yeah. know, yeah. film history yeah. background. Like he cares about it. He collects old prints. Yeah, he saves a whole bunch of old movies. Yeah, uh, he's he's a big uh, 
you know, in in uh, support of restoring old film because yeah. even the worst old films made in the 30s are now degrading at such a rapid degree yeah. that some of them will be lost forever. A yeah. certain percent already has been. Yeah. And uh, he doesn't he, he he'll want to save the worst of those films because as far as he's concerned that's a piece of history that needs to be protected. Yeah. You know, uh, I can respect that. Yeah. I think one thing that Scorsese does well is ask really more adult, difficult questions than, say, like a filmmaker like Tarantino does. Um, like, the, the, for those who don't know, before Mar- Martin Scorsese was the filmmaker that we've come to know and love, he studied to be a priest and was kicked out of seminary school for, you know, bad behavior. But his faith is, his Catholic faith is such a huge part of his identity that it flows in almost every single movie. I think it does. It flows in almost every single movie that he does. There's some either biblical theme or angle. He loves the seven sins and he loves his fake prophets. I'll say that much. Well, but it transcends it. Like, we're going to talk about Kundun. Yes. Right? Yes. So, like, he's very respectful about and interested in other people's faith. Yes. Whereas you're right, I would say his faith casts shadow in some of his films, even in areas maybe when it doesn't need to. He's just a big fan of it. Yeah. Um, the fact that it's a recurring theme, it's, it's in the way that the Coen brothers often have dream sequences in their films. Scorsese yeah. will almost have, always have religious imagery or allegory happening with his films. He deals a lot with tragic characters, characters seeking redemption, whether or not they deserve it. Mm-hmm. I uh, have talked about on the podcast recently how uh, I've had trouble with movies that have characters that are unlikable. Yes. And Scorsese almost specializes <laughs> in movies mm-hmm. where characters are unlikable. Like Travis Bickle, you know, King of Comedy. We're going to talk about The Wolf of Wall Street, right? Ooh. The... the, the, the the raging bull character is a, is a t- just an objectively terrible person. I wanted to, I just, yeah, I wanted to strangle Johnny Boy so badly in Mean Streets. Yeah, Johnny Boy again yeah. and again. He's sort of presented almost as the lovable character in the yeah. movie, and he's just awful. He's yeah, just like, awful. Like, oh yeah, like, but. Uh, Scorsese somehow gets around this curve with me because even though most of his movies are dealing with terrible characters I usually really get wrapped up in their stories Mm -hmm. the energy of the movie and the the deafness of the storytelling just sweeps me up and I just can't help Maybe not necessarily, I'm not necessarily cheering for the characters all the time, yeah. but I'm caught up in the story and I will see it through to the end. Yeah. Um, I don't need to, like, the, the morality is all over the place in these movies and in his... In his the morality is all over this place? I, I don't know. I think uh, Scorsese is definitely judging a lot of these characters and he's got his, his own morality is definitely in these movies. So I wouldn't say it's all over the place. But as far as us focusing on characters, he's not necessarily interested in the guy who comes in and saves the day. He's you know, yeah. He's not choosing to do biopics on some heroic firefighter, right? He's, he's yeah. choosing some really tragic, almost like Shakespearean level tragedies to yeah. tell. But he tells them in this really fast-paced, invigorating way. Mm-hmm. The thing that Paul Thomas Anderson really sort of tried to emulate with Boogie Nights, so mm-hmm. sort of telling a really ugly story in a sort of almost action movie or uh, music video way, mm-hmm. so that even though it's almost overwhelmingly negative yeah. and amoral at times, yeah. it's just so 
entertaining. It's so yeah. flatly entertaining yeah. that you accept it and roll with the punches. Yeah. Um, one thing that which I'm sure we'll talk about constantly, or at least a bit in this episode, is Scorsese does really great music mm-hmm. soundtrack. His relationship with like Robbie Robertson. You know, I mean, he did the last waltz, the band, like Bob Dylan, like he, Peter Gabriel, like he has a great ear for music that really helps his movies. And like from early on, yeah. Um, well, like I said, every aspect of filmmaking, Marty knows about. He knows the history of. Like he is one of. I I wouldn't be surprised if he's some sort of savant in some sort of way. But at the same time, he can work in such abstract thoughts. In a lot of ways, that like he's clearly an intelligent man. He's, I think, a two-time Palm Door winner. Yeah. Like, like Martin Scorsese is a brilliant, fucking good film- filmmaker who makes great fucking movies. Yeah. Makes great fucking movies. And yeah. like, again, just to like say, like, okay, Taxi Driver, indelible classic, right? Yeah. Um, what's the famous uh, rock documentary? Last, Last Waltz. Waltz. Uh, that basically created the subgenre of like the concert film, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, he does amazing uh, biopic documentaries on people like Bob Dylan, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, you're right. He'll turn around and do a remake of Cape Fear yeah. or, or or The Departed, which is actually a remake. Yeah, uh, you know. I think in a lot of ways, he's one of the safest bets as far as you're buying your movie ticket. Yeah. Like I'm gonna like if Martin Scorsese is on the poster as your director, you 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 can safely buy your ticket. You can feel like that's gonna it, it's gonna be worth it. Yeah. I I think I said before we started this the the worst Martin Scorsese movie is going to be better than most filmmakers' best. Yeah. So we're working in a high arena, yes. and as usual, as I've said in the past in the podcast. I tend to be hardest on the ones that I love. Okay. I, I tend to be snootiest on the director masterclass no, I, I episodes. Hear I hear you. I court you to the episode I did with Debray about like crime director masterclass. Yeah. Where I was like very hard on like yeah. De Palma and Scorsese and all these guys yeah. who are just fucking amazing filmmakers. Yeah. But because it's a Martin Scorsese joint, I bring to it expectation. Yes. He's earned that. And yes. that itself is a double edged sword. Okay. I have so much respect for him. Uh, they do these like director or, or creative master class courses that you can sign up for online or whatever. Yeah. And there's a Martin Scorsese one. <laughs> I haven't seen the actual course, but uh, I saw the advertisement for it. Yeah. And he had this line in it that just stuck me right in the heart. Okay. <laughs> uh, as a uh, filmmaker, he yeah. said, uh, if when you look at the first cut of your film, you don't feel physically ill. Something is very wrong. Yeah, I remember that line. And uh, I, I can completely relate to that after mm-hmm. spending like almost two years shooting a book of trespasses, right? Yeah. When we just sort of strung together the rough footage yeah. in, in, in not a really picky way and just like, yeah. just get it on rough draft, right? Yeah. We're going to bear down from here. The, that first watch was ter- like terrible. It was, yeah. ter- it was a terrible feeling. Yeah. And it was such a great relief and elation for me to think that that's how Scorsese feel- feels to this day. Yeah. The first time he looks at the rough cut of one of his films, right? Yeah. So, like, do, do not despair. <laughs> that, that, that is that's okay. And that that came from, from Scorsese really, it, like I said, it got me in the heart. I was just like, 
thank you, brother. <laughs> and again, he's not one of these. He's not like, you know, keeping his secrets. It's like he's got yeah. this like no. mass. He loves film so much. He wants everybody to 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 make the best film that they can make. Yeah, you should really watch that documentary on matte paintings. Uh, yeah. Like seriously, he will make you fall in love <laughs> <laughs> with that element of filmmaking. Like I seriously want to see some old nineteen forties fifties musicals just to see the backdrop. Yeah. Well, not to skip to the end, too. Yeah. He can sell almost anything. Yeah. Like, he can almost sell me The Wolf of Wall Street. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I guess we'll get there. Is there anything that you wanted to say? No, I think we've, we've already talked, like, a good long way. I think you're in for a treat, ladies and gentlemen. We're, <laughs> we're going to dig in a little tonight. Yeah, we're, 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 we're talking about Martin Scorsese. As far as I'm concerned, he's one of the boys. Yeah. He's one of the boys. Yeah. Uh, like again, if you could, like, if I could have a steak dinner with somebody, <laughs> just to have, just to, to pick his brain a little bit, I would yeah. fucking love that. Yeah. So we're gonna talk about six films from his very diverse career, and they're very diverse films: Mean Streets, Raging Bull, Kundun, Gangs of New York, Hugo, and The Wolf of Wall Street. Yep. Uh, again, like, we're gonna get started, but I thought it was kind of deliberate that we would do two DiCaprio and two De Niro. Yeah. Uh, at some point, we might have to touch on that. Yeah. Those seem to be two of his regular working muses. Yeah. And uh, which is better, which is worse, who's the better driver? We we can get into it. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know what's kind of funny about this list? What's that? Like, like, I don't think I'm being too brass. Or bold by saying that all six of these films are at least very good, <laughs> um, and but and there's some classics in this list. Yeah, um, it is not my favorite Scorsese film in this list. It's Bringing Out the Dead. Like right. that's how good he is. That's your very favorite, you'd say? Bringing Out the Dead, with hands down. Okay. Bringing Out the Dead, After Hours, Good uh, Goodfellas. Yeah, see, Goodfellas is number one. I would have to say personally. Yeah. It's it's well, it's the quintessential modern gangster movie. Unfortunately, we're not talking about good fellas today, yeah. but we got lots of good stuff to get to, so yes. let's let's get to it. Okay. Charlie cared for them all. What do you like? I like spaghetti and clam sauce, mountains, <laughs> Francis of Assisi. Hailed by the critics, the New York Times called it beautifully realized. John Wayne. No, they're on in the uh, mountains in Manhattan. Pauline Kael of The New Yorker called it a triumph of personal filmmaking. Newsday said, exquisite, savage, and compassionate. Who's going to help him if I don't? It's what's the matter? Nobody, nobody, nobody tries anymore. Tries what? She tries to, to help us all, help people. You help yourself first. You show up, Therese. That's where you're all wrong. Francis and Mr. had it all down. He knew. What are you talking about? He knew. What are you talking about? St. Francis didn't run numbers. Newsweek said, Mean Streets triumphantly heralds the arrival of Martin Scorsese. So it's 1973. Yep. Uh, this is not Martin Scorsese's first movie. Yes. But to me, it feels like it's Martin Scorsese's first movie. It's his most, it's first time that he had 100% control of every aspect of the production. Yeah. And it's clearly a very personal story. Yes. Uh, this is uh, uh, not autobiographical, but based on people he kind of sort of knew when he was growing up. Yes, well, there's even a documentary on the one disc uh, showing you know, the making of Mean Streets, and he has you know, the friends that have been obviously a big influence on the two lead characters in this movie. Yeah. 
Uh, those two lead characters are played by obscure actors, Robert De Niro and Never Harvey Keitel. Never heard of them. <laughs> but they sound like losers. It's funny because they feel like they're so young in this movie. I it's know. Kind of, it's, it's kind of adorable. It's baby Harvey. <laughs> Uh, and what the movie is largely exploring, other like it's a kind of traditional coming of age thing. Some yeah. people will call this like duality, but I almost call it like this hypocrisy because there's this very sort of religious angle where you got to do the right thing and you yeah. have to like respect the spiritual life. Yeah. But both of them are actively trying to climb this criminal underground ladder, uh, and how they can you know square that circle. This movie is a lot about Catholic guilt. Yeah, it, it, re- it really, really, really is. Where and about the New York of the nineteen seventies. Yes, and you know, like Harvey Keitel is supposed to be a respectable man if you've seen the trailer, um, but there were you know there it's like an oxymoron. You're trying to be a respectable man in the world of you know organized crime. Indeed. Again, like, how do you, like, right there, there's just an open hypocrisy to it. Mm-hmm. So, Charlie, who is Harvey Keitel, and Johnny Boy, yes. who are Robert De Niro, are buddies sort of mutually ascending in this world. Are they, are they childhood friends? Yeah, they yeah. go back. Um, Johnny Boy likes to borrow money from people <laughs> and likes to not pay it back. Yes. And the Charlie has this strange loyalty to Johnny Boy because Johnny Boy just gets himself into messes and he keeps on trying to get him out of it and that just sort of seems to be their relationship and it's kind of not a healthy relationship in fact Johnny Boy outright throws that in his face at one point in the movie Um, and again I guess it's it's frank honesty about that like they're basically family they're that close and you're willing to put up with a lot from family but when is a lot too much when is family not enough? Mm-hmm. Can they ever get themselves out of this mess that they put themselves in? Yeah. And I think that the answer offered by the film is a hard no. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, again, it's it's a complete Scorsese joint in that yeah. we have like the great sort of religious shadow cast over everything. Yeah. We have the moral ambiguous sort of personal and real war that's going on yeah and we have this desire for escape that's all got this inevitable cloud of you know fate closing its fist over them we're gonna see this again and again and again and again um so the only weakness and i say this like with with quotation marks is just because of the time and the money yeah this very much does not have the polish yeah. of your average Martin Scorsese It's joint. the least polished film out of this whole series. Like, even when we jump to Taxi Driver from yeah. here, it's a degree up, like, ridiculously. This feels like an independent film, in a way, like... Uh, yeah. But it also, that sort of helps the sort of personal, familial... Per, yeah, this is this is a very real story yeah. for Scorsese. He knows this pe- these people. He knows yeah. these neighborhoods. Yeah. Ironically, apparently, most of it wasn't shot in New York. They shot a lot of it in Los Angeles. Really? But it, it is a, a movie that is very much sort of related to New York. People yeah. relate Mean Street as a New York movie, but yeah. a good large portions of it weren't shot there. Uh, there's a lot to love. There's, there's still you can tell that there's great actors all through this movie. But yeah. again, they're so they're younger. They're not. They haven't hit their peak yet. Yeah. Even De Niro, I think, is is. Well, he went on uh, lots of not. You know, I think I even I got he has the showiest performance of yeah. this. But yeah. this is 
this is sort of a young De Niro feeling shit out. It feels like yeah, it's no, great. It, it's great. Yeah. But uh, there's not the assured sort of confident De Niro yet. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can see that. Like you can tell that they are in some ways they've learned some ropes, but not all of them. Um, you know, he is communicating well with his actors at, at that point. Like the performances are stellar, amazing. I guess what feels amateur, amateurish, and yes, you know, it is also a low-budget movie. I, I couldn't quite put my finger on it in a lot of ways about why this film has some flaws to it. Can I, I suggest one? Sure. Sound design. Okay. I think, it, again, of all the things that aren't polished, uh, I watch it projected on my big screen here. Uh, yeah, that night. makes sense, actually. Uh, um, and uh, it's still got that dingy, dark 70s quality that even yeah. though it was projected big, I felt myself sort of squinting while I looked at it. Yeah. But despite that barrier, I was able to get over that. Mm-hmm. It was the sound that started to get distracting to me. Yeah. There was some strange audio cuts between like the levels of the dialogue or just the abrupt cuts of sound. Mm-hmm. Even in the end, not to jump the needle, but in the climactic car accident. Or, yeah. Can you call that a car accident? It's I would, a shootout I, I would call it an assassination. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but just the way that that highly orchestrated music so abruptly cuts out yeah. to the stony reality it almost draws attention to the fact that you're watching a movie you know in a way that's confusing to me I think it might just be an aesthetic of the 70s that I'm yeah. not used to because it's yeah. it's 2018 <laughs> so yeah. um, but that stuff sort of started to stick out to me Okay. but I mean again I I'm being hard on it because it's a Martin Scorsese joint. It's hard to find shit to do. And this is this is like like I said, young Scorsese. He's also starting starting to figure out his visual style. He loves those long tracking shots where he can play with the speed. It's either like the foreground speeds up or the or the background can slow right down. Right. Um, he's definitely gaining greater control of the frame. For me, the one thing that that makes it sort of young Scorsese hasn't quite figured out. The, what the meaning of motion picture is. He discovers it pretty bloody quick, but you know, he understands that when you're looking at a movie, one of the things that makes it a motion picture, maybe not a film, is that the set design and the, the use of colors, it's like you're looking at paintings in a lot of ways uh, for your backdrop, um, or how he, how he frames the actor in, in the actual square itself. You know, he's creating certain paintings. There's certain, you know, might be alluding to how the lead character is feeling. That's not quite there with Mean Streets, but we do get that style of that slow, long, you know, long pans across the bar or tracking shots, if you will, right. uh, to, you know, some amazing rock song. Um, that's Martin Scorsese. Yeah. Yeah. And again, he picks very well, sort of specific. Yeah iconic pieces of rock music that just seem to slot perfectly into yeah. place. That is the right song for that visual. Yeah. Uh, that's something we keep going back to Tarantino that Tarantino seems to do very well. Yeah. Pick the right song to go with the right visuals to make it very memorable and striking. Yeah. Um, in that way, like a, Tarantino's a sort of it's a buffet filmmaker. He just takes the stuff he likes from other filmmakers and incorporates it yeah. in. That thing is that's that that sort of feels Scorsese him. His his incorporation of the pop music into the yeah the pop mentality of the movie. Yeah, uh, I wanted to ask you, how do you feel about Johnny Boy as a character? Oh, I wanted to strangle him from the second he was on the screen. Like you, you understand very quickly that this guy is gonna you know 
be a lot of dead weight to you and, and could be is a huge part of your downfall. Because we're going to talk about a lot of assholes and tragic trajectories. Unlikable characters, nice. yeah. And, so, and this is sort of like maybe the first real one of those, right? Yep. Um, and I agree. I didn't like him right away, and I never understood why other people liked him. I don't know that it's a flaw in the movie, because you believe him. You don't necessarily have to like him to believe the character, but why does Harvey Keitel go to the mat for Johnny Boy again and again and again and never get get anything out of it? Just just the, this blind loyalty. Um, it, this, this sort of Klingon mentality that he's just... It's, this is the right thing to do, and doing the right thing is the right thing, and that will lead to the right outcome. And once again, the the ending slowly seems inevitable. Uh, uh, I I remember watching this for the first time. I borrowed it from the Saskatoon Library on VHS sometime in the 1900s. Yeah. And uh, even at that young age, I felt that bad ending coming. Yeah. There was just something so inevitable, and the way that they were all laughing and, and, and together, and mm-hmm. suddenly forgiven of all. It seems like the second they get outside the city limits of New York, all is forgiven between them, and they're all smiles. And you know what, Lee? They're going to be best friends forever. <laughs> <laughs> okay. True enough. True enough. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, and again, it's not necessarily a bad thing that you you can see the tracks ahead of the train a little bit, like you you know where this thing is leading, but uh, there's an inevitability to it now, and again, maybe if I watched it in 1973, I wouldn't feel that way, but I definitely felt that way now. Mm, Okay, I, I can see what you're saying. Um, I think you're supposed to really not like Johnny Boy from the start. I think that's deliberate. You think he's the villain of the piece? Oh, by a country mile. I think he's. I I am more interested in when it's like himself sabotaging when it's a problem with himself. Yeah. Than when he's just like looking at like Harvey Keitel saying like, I I I steal from everybody in town. Yeah. And now no one will take money from me, so I will take money from you because I know, no matter how many times I take money from you, you'll never you know say no to me. Yeah. He's like right in his fucking face about it. Yeah. He's, he's a broken person, and he's, like, sucking the life out of his, quote, best friend. Yeah. And he's smug about it. <laughs> yeah. He's shitty about it. Yeah. He's conscious about it. So, yeah, no, I don't... I, like, kick that fucking asshole out of the car. Yeah. And just drive out of town with your but that's, girl. But that's but one that's of the... That's not great, who Harvey Keitel is. And that's one of the greatest flaws of that character, because he's trying to be... You know, a somewhat a good, decent man, and a system that is designed to make you immoral to begin with. You can call that hypocrisy if you want. Is it but, condescending to try and help somebody who's guilty of everything that you're guilty of? Right? I mean, he's not as <coughs> responsible with his choices or his money, but Harvey mm-hmm. Keitel is living larger the same life. He's just smarter about it. Yeah. And he doesn't seem to be in a self-destructive spiral. Well, he also doesn't officially steal from a lot of people. No. Uh, and, and he's not pooping where he lives. Um, you know, he you know he dresses nicer than both Johnny Boy and uh, what's what's the other uh, woman the, the character character's name? Uh, Teresa. Teresa. Is that yeah, uh, Teresa. Um, he finds them like their cousins. Are they not? <laughs> or are they? Like, how are they related? To Johnny Boy, I think Teresa is Johnny Boy's cousin. Yeah, yeah, I believe that's right. Yes, yeah. I'm <laughs> sorry. Like even she's trying to distance herself from uh, Johnny Boy, but uh, she herself has uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? 
I don't want to say flawed because it's not that. It just makes. Um, she has faith in someone who has never given her reason to have faith. And he looks in. less out of her, if anything. Yeah. Yeah. The more chances she gives him, the less respect he has for her. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and again, it's this loyalty thing. You're, you're loyal to your family. Uh, going to Goodfellas briefly, like as much as the Ray Liotta character in Goodfellas is responsible for a lot of terrible things, mm-hmm. in the logic of the movie, the worst thing that he does is testify against his friends, yeah, his fellow mafia brothers, right? Yes, but and uh, Scorsese our, sees that guy as a total villain. You yeah. Know? Oh, yeah. No, yeah. no, no. But like in that world of the yeah. film, yeah. despite being responsible for murder, yeah, in his, his worst, head, his, yeah, worst, his, his worst crime he ratted is betrayal. Friend. Yeah. <laughs> not murder. Not drug trafficking. <laughs> betrayal. betrayal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and how do you feel? I, it's a it's it's an interesting dark seventies ambiguous ending in that they don't say everybody's okay or what the reaction is. I think like, two out of three survive that. I yeah. think one is clearly not going to make it. Johnny Boy looks like he's bleeding out. Yeah, and uh, well, he's pounding a wall with like gushers of a geyser of blood coming out of his neck. Yeah, and, and I would Scorsese, like to... or, or, or Keitel's got a badly busted or shot arm. Yeah, and the girl looked pretty bad off, but yeah. alive. Yeah. So, but I mean, yeah, I guess you, the, the bad guys weren't really necessarily after them as much as they were after the De Niro characters. So. No, no, he was the main target. Like, yeah. I mean, he had just insulted really, I want to say, well, not one of their other friends, but, you know, business associates throughout the movie who has every right reason in the world to carry that execution out <laughs> especially for the for that particular world that we are witnessing but yeah that's sort of the the the, the strange fate that Harvey Keitel willfully puts himself in again it's one yeah. of those hilarious things where somebody designs a trap collects all of the pieces for a trap builds the trap put themselves in the trap triggers the trap and then says fuck I'm in a trap yeah (laughs) every single time he helps De Niro it fucks him right and that's the way the movie ends whenever he's trying to show any sort of good decent part of humanity of of someone it's to a person who clearly does not deserve it and is sucking the life out of the other person and it's all about Catholic guilt I'm guilt 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 I'm guilt I've got that sexual relationship with a somewhat outcast in society. My best friend is a sociopath who... Should he be more loyal to Jesus than he is to his best friend? Yeah. Yeah. It's and like, there, there like, lies that question to that movie. In a way, to me, Mean Streets is kind of like his Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. And now Taxi Driver would be his Pulp Fiction. That's where he's like solidified himself. Is okay, he's a force to be reckoned with. Yeah. You see a lot of potential in this. You see a lot of like... And he brings, you know, great performances from a great new set of actors. And he's yeah. going to continue to do that. We're going to talk about Raging Bull where he introduces the world to this guy, Joe Pesci. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's your thought on... Is it Catherine? Uh, sorry, uh, Teresa? Teresa. The Amy Robinson character? Yeah. Well, she's very good in the movie. I think so. Yeah, yeah. She's, in a lot of ways, sort of like the moral center of the picture. Um, <laughs> yeah. She is, if you saw me think about it. Uh, she's always trying to do right by everybody. In the same way, in Harvey Keitel's mind, at least, he's always trying to do right by everybody. Yeah. But he still participates in a criminal enterprise. Yes. Yeah. 
Uh, so I guess I'm, I'm finishing where I started. <laughs> All right, okay, let's up bring it back, yeah. <laughs> but that's fine. Like, uh, again, we're going to see this again. I think that he gets better scripts and deeper uh, into it, sort of in his continuing crime saga series. Like yeah. I said, you could almost watch a, a, like a subplot yeah. series of movies in Scorsese's oeuvre of just like the, the study of this morally dubious criminal characters. I do have a question before we sort of like get zero off on this yeah, for sure. review. Did you find the movie claustrophobic to watch? Um, increasingly so, but I think it had a lot to do again with the lo-fi uh, lighting and sort of grain of the 70s. But cinema. he also shoots in, in some pretty enclosed spaces and I can't help but wonder if that's deliberate. Like even some of like you know, the small little apartments that you know, little old ladies are living in or you know, sort of crooks and crannies of, you know, of that particular city that you do feel bunched in. Implying they're sort of, like, trapped. Yeah, yeah. And well, not only they're that, sort of, like, inevitably like, trapped into their fate. He'll right? revisit this once again with Gangs of New York. I don't want to ex- explore too much here, but okay. it, there are lots of lots of sequences inside bars or little dives somewhere where it's, like, you, you feel an extra sense of tension and dread. Right. So I just wondered if if, that you've, if you had that same feeling or definitely definitely okay. I like I said um, I don't know if it's been it, it's a pretty clean remastered edition like the DVD yeah. cut that I have it looks nice but in spite of how clean and remastered it is it can't sort of hide the the lo-fi seventies gunge to it yeah but in a way it kind of helps the film it's sort of appropriate yeah um, I, I like it it's far from my favorite Scorsese film but I like it a lot yeah. The Bronx Bull, the Raging Bull. Let's hear for the great Jake LaMotta, ladies and gentlemen. I'm the best. I can take him more than anybody. You're dead. You're married. Think the young girl's for me. There's no way I'm going down. I don't go down for nobody. Listen with him. Why does he have to make it so hard on himself? If you beat Trigger Ray, you'll get a shot at the title. You feel that way? There's no one else around who wants to fight me. They're all afraid. There's a lot of bad things, Joey. Maybe it's coming back to me. So apparently, uh, on the set of Godfather 2, De Niro read the book written by Jake LaMotta about his life. He wasn't particularly impressed necessarily about the writing, but the, the honesty with which he told his story. Yeah. <laughs> because objectively, this is a movie about a terrible person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, um, it's funny that... A lot of people consider this like quote the, one of the greatest sports movies ever made, but I just it's not a sports. Movie. I don't think of it as a sports movie at all. It was driving yeah. me crazy. I just was looking at the DVD and like there's um, all these. We recommend if you like this, watch Field of Dreams and fucking like all these other like sports themed movie. And I'm like, did you watch this this Raging Bull movie, this epic Shakespearean tragedy <laughs> that we see here? Yeah. Um, the only. I mean, the obvious closest comparison would be Rocky, which I talked about the whole Rocky franchise recently. But it is the anti-Rocky? Novel. But indeed, it is yeah. exactly that. Well put. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, we we are almost at odds with cheering for him. Like, I, at some point, 
The only moment that he has any somewhat redeeming, there's a couple where he pays his penance, uh, basically getting destroyed by Frankie Robinson. Yeah. Um, after he, you know, it's one of the first time we see him beat his wife. You know, he, he looks at her and then looks back at the, uh, his opponent, who then mercis just turns him into veal. Yeah. Um, so he brought the project to Scorsese and kind of six wore, times. Yeah, he kind of wore him down. This is what yeah. I about to say. Uh, and it's interesting. A lot of people will say like Raging Bull is like their number one favorite Scorsese film. I don't consider it my number one Scorsese film. I understand why people would say that. It is strangely beautiful, and it's, um, you know, very composed, black and white, mm. beautiful cinematography. And uh, I love, I love the the way they handle the boxing in a way like they say the anti-Rocky. Um, they're not interested in the reality of the ring, and a lot of the the most of the time the opponent is the camera. There's a a scene in, in Creed mm-hmm. <laughs> I've talked about it before where where Rocky tells Creed as he's boxing into a mirror that the toughest opponent you're going to fight your whole life is right there is your reflection mm-hmm. and that is Raging Bull mm-hmm. right it's got the classic sort of biopic thing where we see him getting ready for a performance and as he's sort of getting himself ready, he's reliving all of the experiences that led him up to this point. It's actually been made fun of. It's been used so often. It's sort of become a thing. Mm-hmm. But his was early in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, everything about the way the movie presents itself, he's just going, well, here's our protagonist. Here's De Niro all bulked out, put on a lot of weight. Here's who we're cheering for. Mm-hmm. And instead of following the typical biopic, you know, the walk the line thing, so when it comes full round, he's about to make his famous Folsom Prison performance, you're like, fuck yeah, Johnny Cash. When it gets full round and we come to the end credits and Jake Lamont is about to go do his lame comedy routine, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's so much fuck yeah or fuck you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is a guy who Let's, betrays I... and belittles anybody who tries to help him once again who abandons one wife for a child, mm-hmm. marries that child, and then abuses her through her title <laughs> wife, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, is never happy. Even when he has, even when he's on top of the game, like, happiness is elusive to him. Mm-hmm. So once again, I come from my perspective of five, having a hard time with movies with unlikable protagonists. Why do I like Raging Bull so much, and should I? Mm-hmm. Well... It is, I, I, I think for Scorsese, I think it is about redemption in a lot of ways. If you even look at the quote at the end of the movie, I have it here because that's kind of what at least Scorsese wanted to talk about with Raging Bull. It's, uh, let me see here. Yes, it's from John nine twenty five, the book of John. And here it is. And he answered and said, whether he be a sinner or, or no, I know not. Uh, one thing I know that whereas I was blind, now I see. Now he does talk about you know two film teachers that were he, what he considers his best teachers of film right after because he had passed away. Yeah. So one illusion is you know these two men that made him help him see the light at least when it comes to film. But for Lomada, the man who has lost everything at the end, and only now sort of understands some sort of sad part of humanity. You know, like, I wouldn't, I don't think Scorsese is saying his sins have sort of been washed away free, but he's... He's not redeemed. 
No. I wouldn't say. No, not at all. But do you think he's reborn? I, I think that it's almost hindsight is twenty twenty the movie. Yeah. In that when you look back on everything, you know exactly what you should have done. Yeah. You know exactly where you went wrong. You know exactly the disastrous choice that you made, exactly when you made it. Yeah. And you can relive that and you can think about it, but you can't change it. You can look back with the clarity that you did not have at the time. Right. Uh, and that's sort of his, his curse. That's his torment. Um, you know, he has lost everything and he's well past his best before date. He's never going to be a champ again. You know, he's, you know, at best going to be, you know, left to center square on the, uh, you know, Hollywood squares. It's just like it's over for him. There's yeah. there's no happy ending for him. Uh, whatever goal, whatever horizon he was seeking for. He forgot what it was or yeah. gave up. <laughs> so, uh, yay! <laughs> this is a man so consumed by his flaws. Um, and ultimately, I think he looks in the mirror and realizes that he is the, the creator of his own destruction. To Sorry. quote the great band Radiohead, you do it to yourself, you do, and that's why it really hurts. I think if, if anything, if that movie was made today he would have to end this movie with that particular line because that's one thing that Raging Bull talks about. That and sexual insecurity. Like That's one thing that he completely unravels at is that he is so insecure about being intimate. Yeah. Um, I also think uh, the self-hatred, again, yeah. the whole idea of building your own traps and falling, setting them... Um, he sees this girl in a schoolyard and is like yeah. fucking hypnotized yeah. by her. This is creepy, by the way. Yeah, like, no, this yeah, yeah, is it's, creepy. It's done as creepy. Uh, and, and he wants to possess her, and he abandons everything to possess her, and he gets to possess her. Yeah. And that's her fatal flaw. Yeah. That she was susceptible to his charms makes him suspicious of her. <laughs> right? Yeah. right? Yeah. The fact that she said yes. It fucked her, right? Yeah. Like that's so crazy. But again, believable. I, um, I get frustrated when we have villainous or or terrible characters who are just evil, yeah. right? He's selfish and flawed, but you kind of, you see where it's coming from. Not yeah. to the point where you like understand him or sympathize with him, but it just it doesn't seem like he's. It's all necessarily black and white. It comes from something. Yeah. Uh, but again, oh. it's complex enough that they can give you that, but not ask you to sympathize. Yep. Um, one thing, it, it's interesting, like Scorsese talks about when he finally said yes to this movie, and it was after a near death experience he had from a drug overdose uh, mixed with an asthma attack. Um, and it's a, he saw something that connected with him to Jake LaMotta. And I wonder what that was. That's the one question I'd ask about the movie. Looking back with regret would be my guess. I mean, yeah. I, I'm not. I don't know the man. Again, I would ask him that on that steak dinner we talked yeah. about, maybe. But. Yeah. But um, he somehow, like, he loves Lamada. That's the one thing about Scorsese, especially when he does his gangster flicks or his crime dramas, is that he has genuine love and an affection for horrible, horrible men and tries desperately to put humanity into them. Hate the sin, not the sinner. Is yeah. not that the very Catholic way? Yeah. 
And here's a shining example in a lot of ways. When we first, well, I would not first see it because we saw it on Mean Streets, but, you know, he's trying and understands quite well the worst of toxic masculinity in some regards. You know, here is a wife abuser. Uh, whose violence I, I love even the sound in this we talked about how you know the sound in uh, Mean Streets was probably a weakness here he's got animal jungle noises over you know the punching and, and bo- the boxing or just the, the violence aspect of it it's unnerving yeah, we should talk about the fights actually because I think that like in a way the, some of the least quote realistic stuff in the film is how yeah. they handle the boxing like the human drama but it's much more interesting. Well, I mean, interesting is not the wrong. The human drama is much more realistically covered yep. than the boxing. Yep. A lot of the times, what we're seeing, they're basically boxing the camera. Yep. So we're seeing these hits coming. Yeah. And we're sort of seeing, or we're seeing the point of view of, you know, as the other boxer. Um, but again, it's all so beautiful and it's slowed down and like yeah. we just see all these droplets of sweat showering down like rain and we see sort of the physical exhaustion of the men and uh, the the second by second sort of calculations of the fight but we don't have the typical rowdy rocky style you know spit take crowd shouting brutality that you'd expect mm-hmm. it's artistically handled violence yeah, uh, and like Scorsese does not uh, scream away from, from violence and again we do see on his face the results of these blows yeah. and, and what a lifetime of those blows does to not just the inside of your brain but the know, outside of your face even there's the term palooka which is just a boxer that's taken too many hits uh, that, that, that you know you basically <laughs> regress yeah. to a simple childish kind of persona yeah. And you have no long-term or, or short-term memory, I think it is, you know. Like, it's uh, all just sort of your basic day-to-day needs, you yeah. know. Yeah. What's the next meal? What's the next thing we're doing? And there's no past and there's no future. Yeah. And uh, I don't think that he's to that point at the end of the film, but <laughs> these are the very real consequences of boxing. And you believe that in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe Pesci. Yep. This is sort of where the world sort of was introduced to Joe Pesci. Yep. And uh, Scorsese was really impressed and liked him and they had similar backgrounds. And it was Joe Pesci that pointed in the direction of Moriarty, mm-hmm. who was, again, just a stage actress. This was like, you know... Uh, so to come out of nowhere to be in the film that got nominated for like eight Oscars in 1980, including Best Picture, that's a nice way to start your career. Yep. <laughs> and uh, thankfully... Uh, he, he and Pesci worked again a lot of times. I really like Pesci as an actor here, and this is kind of a different role because it was before he established himself as the consummate son of a bitch, right? Yeah. He's yeah. actually a very, in this world, he's a very likable and sympathetic character by yeah. contrast. Yeah. yeah. He's yeah. trying to do right. And I, I'm going to say something bold here. I think his performance in this movie is far greater than his Academy Award winning performance in Goodfellas. And he's it brilliant. has more range to it, I would it say. It has, and he's brilliant in Goodfellas. Yeah. It's just, yeah, range is, is one thing. Um, execution is another. Like, you, you see the craftsmanship in, in his performance. Yeah. It's a real human being. And yes, he's definitely one of the most likable characters in a very, very awful world. <laughs> um, yeah, I have nothing but great things to say about Joe Pesci. It's, it hands down is one of my favorite of his performances, and he's got many. Yeah. Uh, and it's not 
Yes, it's sort of that sort of rapid fire wormy kind of character. He's got that speech pattern. Yeah. Um, but there's greater pauses to his speech pattern and, and performances. Like I, I said, it's not that sort of hyper styled rat a tat tat rapid fire character that he becomes more associated with. I really like the scene once, like, he kind of disappears from the movie for a while. They have yeah. a falling out. Yeah. And when they meet up again towards the, the third act of the movie, the mm-hmm. way it's a sort of... It's not exactly forgiveness, but it's like a resignation yeah. that this guy's part of his life in a way. Like, you can't deny that Lamad has made a dent on you and... Uh, uh, you know, all of the energy spent hating him all these years later would be wasted. But it's not like, oh shucks, we're all buddies again either. It's so layered. Yeah. And uh, that again, for your first time acting in a movie, I think that that's definitely handled. And again, we barely talked about De Niro, and a lot, a lot of it is the physical transformation. Like, yeah. Flashy things like this, I think of like, of course, The Machinist with Christian Bale. Yeah. Where almost that that becomes so distracting that it becomes the performance was it the hours where Nicole Kidman had that weird prosthetic thing nose. done to her yeah. nose yeah. and that somehow just became the fucking performance right yeah. so uh, I, it's unfair because I do think that, that De Niro does a hell of a great job with the performance yeah. but it is sort of the physical stuff that becomes the most impressive he goes from this lean mean <laughs> dangerous looking boxing guy to this just sad, fat, unhealthy, greasy dude. And it's not its not a suit. It's not an effect. It's yeah. De Niro taking his work really, really seriously. seriously. Yeah. No, for those who are so used to sort of meet the parents Robert De Niro yeah. or, or bad grandpa Robert De Niro, the one who's <laughs> clearly doing paychecks, and you want to see why at one point he was considered the greatest cinematic actor alive. Yeah. If indeed you've ever found yourself wondering, what's all the fuss What's about? about. <laughs> <laughs> May I point you to Raging Bull? Uh, it is one of the best performances ever put on film. Um, I, yes, I, I agree to a certain extent that um, the physical transformation is one of the things. Um, but you see a man bear his soul in this film. Oh. I, I love when he's put you know, when he's put to prison. And it says, you're not finally, an animal. the door closes yeah. on the prison. Yeah, he, the I'm reality not an animal. I'm not an animal. When he's, you know, clearly trying to convince himself that he's not, but he is. And he you know, starts he, punching the wall. Yeah, he exists on a more primordial level than a lot of people. Yeah. And I think in some ways understands the power of spirituality in that regard. Scorsese also made that um, sort of quote in an interview. That there, there's things that Lamada, because he's so simple-minded, he understands deeper feelings of spirituality, and I can sort of see that. I know that's sort of a complex and even vague answer, but he understands his flaws, I think, greater than a lot of us do. That's maybe how... Because he's left with nothing but time to dwell on them. Yeah. That is his tragic fate. Yeah. In a way, it would be luckier if he had some sort of brain aneurysm or keeled over dead in his, quote, prime. Yeah. But now he just could have been a contender. Yeah. Good enough?
So you can sort of divide Scorsese's films, as I've said, from the ones that are kind of religious to the ones that are super duper religious. Yeah. I mean, Kim Dune's probably one of the more super duper religious ones. It's just not particularly Christian. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it's basically the life story, well, not the complete life story, but almost the complete life story of the 14th Dalai Lama mm-hmm. from the uh, very interesting history of how they go about the selection process and the finding the child that, that is going to be their, their new chosen spiritual leader mm-hmm. to his upbringing to then the very real social, uh, pol- uh, political confrontation, confrontation yeah. that yeah, he has with China. China. Uh, so there's a lot of history being covered, and uh, for that, my resounding sort of takeaway from Kundun is that it's epically beautiful. Roger I remember Pe- Roger Deakins, yeah, I was young in his career too, just killing it. I remember this, like monks walking up these slow looking possibly narrow passages up these um, massive mountainscapes mm-hmm. I think of those sand drawings yeah uh, I, I, I forget I forget the name of that particular um, style of art too but I've, I've seen it live it's, mu- it's believe it or not it's more beautiful live than it is put on film yeah but, and it's still gorgeous here and again just lusciously like you consume the images yes more so than the story because yeah. it's it's sort of like a series of vignettes more than it is a story. Yes, and that's exactly what it is. Almost feels tone its structure pony. narrative is definitely wonky. It's got that weird tone pony. It's a Philip Glass score, and it's yeah. coming similar to the time where he was doing like the Thin Red Line stuff like this, like yeah. uh, almost synthy, strange, eerie, with obviously the lilt, the Tibetan lilt in the background of it. Yeah, but it's this almost hypnotizing tone poem. Mm-hmm. And I have to confess, I watched it for the second time mm-hmm. uh, for this podcast. I fell asleep. Mm. I fell asleep watching Condone. I fell asleep watching one of my favorite filmmakers' movies. Mm. That's just a fact. That's just a thing that happened. Yeah. Um, it's not my favorite Scorsese film, but it's far from a bad film. Yeah. In fact, it's, there's, there's a lot of interesting things to be said about it. Mm-hmm. And again... Uh, he's not afraid to do a hard political film. Yeah, he's actually not allowed in that country at all. Yeah. Him and any of the filmmakers. And he's like stepped on toes before. I mean, he's the last temptation of Christ. Like, yeah. uh, he has no problem, you know, trying to put the human face on a spiritual figure, which yeah. uh, I think can be argued is done a, a little bit here. I would say better done in Passion. Excuse right. me, not the passion, Live. not the passion Live. of the Christ, the last temptation of the Christ. For some reason, I keep on trying to say passion instead of last temptation of the Christ. It's the beautiful cinematography stuff. It's almost something again that could be projected on the wall at a party while music is playing, and and it just it's hypnotizing and beautiful in of itself. Um, the politics are a little bit. Strange. I mean, it's you, obviously we're siding with the people of Tibet here. Yeah. But uh, again, the political system as existing before China invaded wasn't great for the common man, people of Tibet either, right? Yeah. When the monks are running the show, basically they're just the ruling class on the top of the mountain. They have all of the, the rest of the people have nothing. But he defends his territory. He de- it's an invading force. Yeah. China, China instigates 100%. 
Mm -hmm. Um, But it's an interesting area of history that I did not know a lot about, and I certainly did not regret watching it. But I must confess, of the six movies we we were talking about this week, uh, if there's one that felt like homework to me a little bit, Alrighty. it was kind of Kundun. Okay. Um, I, again, a lot to admire. Very, very beautiful, but uh, almost a sleep aid. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Sorry. That's, no, no. I'm being way harder on it than I should be. Right? No, no, you know, it's That's how bad. I feel, though. Okay. Well, uh, I agree with you. It is a vignette story than it is more like a clear through narrative. Um, I. I actually watched this with two pauses, right. where I paused, you know, right, at, you know, at the end of him as being discovered as this new prophet. I think that's the one one question that kind of rolled through my mind is what would happen in today's, you know, if I was alive today and some sort of you know religious prophet came to, you know, was alive today, how would that person be received? Right. Especially on North American soil, can you imagine if someone came back and says, "I'm the second coming of Christ," how would they be viewed? It's crazy. But they weren't selected by the church yeah. itself. Right? Yeah, they were selected by the people. Yeah. Um, and it was just neat to see what, you know, here, you know, according to the Tibet people, is their connection to God. The 14th incarnation yeah. of the Dalai Lama. Yeah, that's their spiritual leader. Yeah. Um, and he's and picked th- out of a farm in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, at the really the border, close to the border of China itself, yeah. uh, is where he's located. Um, that part was intriguing in its own way. That and the fart. That that and the fart. That and the fact um, that he's already got the arrogance of some sort of lead, leader as a child. Mm-hmm. I love that one of the early scenes where he's pushing his father away, saying, "No, my place, my place. You know, this is where I sit." Right. Much like the he leader. He wants the head of the table. Yeah. That's what they're going. To, I mean, I did not miss that symbolically. Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, I'm a skeptically this person in a lot of ways, but I can't yeah. help it. It's really interesting. Like, he has to pick these specific items that belong to the previous incarnation, yeah. and he has to pick these specific items in a specific order. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you could argue, again, <laughs> a thousand monkeys and a thousand typewriters, if they put this test to enough kids, eventually one of them's going to pick the right thing. Yeah. The movie doesn't take that approach. And again, it's interesting that such a very... Christian filmmaker took it very seriously in the same way like Darren Aronofsky who's sort of an outspoken atheist took Noah mm-hmm. very seriously right yeah uh, so I can respect that you know he's telling the story it doesn't have he doesn't have to put his beliefs on it he he's just in the punch. interesting this movie's written by the one who wrote E.T. yeah Matheson yeah yeah uh, what is it sorry it used to be married to Harrison Ford Melissa Matheson Melissa Matheson yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, it seems like a sharp left turn from E.T. <laughs> She's got an interesting list of screenplays on, yeah. her, on her IMDb page. Yeah. yeah, She's definitely a gifted writer. Um, but again, just look at this collision of talent. <laughs> Philip Glass, Martin Scorsese. Roger Deakins. Roger yeah. Deakins, yeah. Melissa Matheson. Like. They're using really not actors. They're using real people as well. Yeah. And, and gave them great performances. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it, I... I really like this, but I, I I can definitely see why it would test people's patience. Um, and at the same time, it also has those one of the most disturbing scenes of, of violence that I've seen. Well, definitely in this series, but in, in quite some time. It, it's more done by how it, they, they tell it more than they show it. And when they do, it is brief. Yeah. 
Although well, there's that, you know, long tracking shot of all those bodies. You get the feeling that n- no matter how savvy, no matter how great a, t- a tactician, he somehow magically became, yeah. Chinese were just there to fucking kill people, <laughs> right? Yeah. And he has this vision. Of, there's this sprawling pan out of death and death and death and death all around him. And it's on... It's not his fault that it's happening, but it's his fault. It's his job to stop it from happening. Yeah, and uh, it is it is uh, striking and nightmarish. Oh my god! Like it, like m- I, I I swallowed something and my heart went. Bleh. Yeah. Um, I don't want to spoil it for the people at home because I do think you should watch this movie. Um, but it is a horrifying event, and it's one of those things where. Usually Scorsese films, with the exception of even Hugo or The Age of Innocence, like there's lots of profanity, lots of you know brutal violence and sex. There's very little, but when this it does happen, this is the happen, first of two PG uh, Scorsese movies that we're reviewing. But when it does happen, you are jolted. Yeah. Um. I love. If if anything, once again, there are so many shots that work as paintings. Uh, there's one part where the little boy is sort of like sneaking around and looking behind uh, in a room or a hallway where a bunch of carpets have been hung and they look like almost different well, primary colors style easy uh, naturalistic paintings well it's just it's the carpets yeah. and they're just gorgeous to look at uh, even the lighting is very lush um yeah, but it, it's at times definitely a struggle to, to follow the narrative. It's not a movie that's necessarily for me, except for the fact that it's directed by Martin Scorsese in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, but that's not a bad thing. And in fact, I think uh, it makes me respect Scorsese more that you would never imagine that the same guy that, you know, made Gangs of New York, which is the movie we're about to talk about, yeah. made Kun Doom, right? Like, yeah. they're, they're so epically fucking different like it's that alone is impressive like I'm fine with filmmakers who find their niche that there's something they're really good at and they ride that pony for as far as they can but like there's something about a filmmaker who like wants to prove he can do it you know it's like uh, Kubrick with The Shining he saw a lot of other directors like William Friedkin was making like The Exorcist and he felt like he was maybe being shown up so he's like no I'm going to make a Kubrick fucking horror movie. Yeah. So uh, uh, I appreciate that. It, it shows the range to his game. Yeah. Scorsese's not just good at making thrillers, you yeah. know? I think you, you could argue he's better at making thrillers than making comedies. But uh, uh, that said, uh, there's a lot of really great Scorsese comedies. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, I would never tell anyone not to watch Kundun, but if you're getting the feeling like this isn't going to rank high on the list for me, you're kind of right. All right, fair enough. <laughs> you're kind of right. Good to show uh, your hand there. But that's okay. The the uh, the movie is beautiful and and interesting enough. It's again, again I, I'm going to watch Goodfellas a hell of a lot more than I'll ever watch Kundun. Yeah. Is that good enough? We're kind of short and sweet on Kundun. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. On my challenge, we have met at this chosen ground to settle for good and all. Who holds sway over the five points? Us natives or the foreign hordes? Yeah!
this knife that struck him down, let me put to rest my father's ghost. Who are you? You're the priest's son, aren't you? His name's Amsterdam. Amsterdam? I'm New York. Everything you see belongs to me. The newsboys and quick thieves and blind tigers here in paradise. Everybody owes, everybody pays. What do you think you're doing? I'm dancing. So why aren't you dancing with him? I'm not in love with him. There's more of us coming off these ships every day. 15,000 Irish a week. Get all of us together and we ain't got a gang. We got an army. Challenge. Challenge accepted. So we now jump to 2002 mm-hmm. and Gangs of New York. And, uh, like, I remember the rumbling coming out before this movie's coming out. You think, yeah. okay, so, like, 1863 New York, chaos, political chaos, the edge of the Civil War, real uh, friction between immigrants. People are in tribes, essentially. Real friction between the immigrant populations, specifically the Irish, strangely, uh, just because of the volume that are settling in and around New York. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you hear about this cast, you know. Daniel Day-Lewis is coming out of retirement to work with Martin Scorsese, right? Leonardo DiCaprio still, like, huge superstar, you know. He, he fronted Titanic, you know. He's, he's going to be a... a He's going to be on the marquee for a while. <coughs> Excuse me. At the time, Cameron Diaz is huge, mm-hmm. and uh, it's full of great character actors, both mm-hmm. British and otherwise. You know, I love me some John C. Riley. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of expectation. Why do so, I hear a butt coming? Because <laughs> you're a dirty person. Okay. Uh, because I think nice. the first time I saw Gangs of New York, mm-hmm. I must admit... I was a little bit disappointed by it. Mm-hmm. It has grown in my esteem slightly. Uh, and uh, of the crime wing of Scorsese's films, right. I would put it lower down. Yep. But you're still in really good company. Yeah. <laughs> okay? But it, again, I don't know what the movie I was expecting or what I wanted it to be. Yeah. But uh, on some time the level, the first pass of it kind of shook me off. There's a few things that I will say uh, that I stick by as criticisms. Okay. okay. Um, Cameron Diaz is a very contemporary presence in this movie. Yes. Her accent's a little bit wonky, yes. and she's not bad, but she's outclassed by everyone around her. Yes. And over and above that, it's just kind of a strange character. She doesn't sort of fit comfortably into the movie. and uh, She has the least to do, unfortunately, and... and has that sort of cliche where she's the romance, the you know the the love interest, and that seems a shame. Part of it is the writing. Yeah. Um, I agree. Maybe a stronger actor could have done something, maybe a little bit with it. But she's not. She's sadly, I don't want to say arm candy because there's more elements to her, but it's it's just one of those tragic things. Not since Tombstone has the female character so obviously been the least captivating thing about the movie. Okay. At least for me. Okay? Yeah. Uh, So there's that. And then I want to talk about Daniel Day-Lewis because, I mean, a mad respect for that guy. He's a Mm -hmm. powerful, huge presence in acting. Okay. He is fucking huge in the movie. Yeah. Huge in the movie. Yeah. 
really, really huge in the movie, and yeah. nobody comes close to matching him. It's almost like one of the characters is being played by a Muppet or is animated or something. Like, he sticks out so much. He is such a huge force of evil and power that the movie seems to understand that nothing can match him, not even Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. Which brings me to Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, I think, for me, it wasn't until The Departed that I was 100% on board with DiCaprio. A lot of it is that he's just got this young boy's face. He just... He, uh, he thrives and strives to play high-status characters. Yeah. He always wants to be the guy in control, knows the shot, yelling at people, telling them what to do. Yeah. But he, uh, for the longest time, just looks like a child. There is no part of his strength or his character that tells you that he is a worthy adversary to the, the butcher, to, to Dan Lee-Lewis' character. Mm. So much so that when it comes to their final confrontation, it's more fate that, come, that hands him his victory than anything that DiCaprio himself has achieved. Yeah. Cumulatively, I think that chips away at some of the dramatic effect of the movie. Okay. Is it entertaining? Absolutely, it's entertaining. <laughs> and yeah. does it tell an interesting, sprawling, sweeping story convincingly? And it's not easy to do. And like, short of sci-fi, in this, when you're doing a movie set in this age, every single shot of the movie is augmented. Everything yeah. is sort of, sort of played out into to a, a very specific, huge level of production that you just, it, it's tough. It's tough. So it's impressively mounted and beautiful as ever. Uh, not my favorite one of his pictures yeah uh but i i hate to use the u word or the o word i wouldn't say that it's overrated but it's it for me it's sort of middle ground scorsese where do you land on gangs of new york well my esteem for it has grown with each sort of viewing um one thing that and it's sort of sad that this is one of the last films that uses real life sets when it comes to grand sweeping epics like you can tell they've made a they put a lot of money into the set design and to the matte paintings and everything this is when CG starts to really take over yeah. with the big epic dramas you know Ridley Scott sort of ushered that in with Gladiator so when you watch this movie there's a, a to me a sort of sense of sadness is this is one of the last movies that will use that much attention to detail with their sets. Yeah. And that's one of the things that um, Scorsese is you know, talking about is like old New York it was this very tribal society. It was very you know, at the fringe. And um, during his research of this movie, he was discovered more and more of, uh, there are buildings upon houses or houses upon houses in New York. Right. Like there's an underground society where people still live there technically to this day. And there's that big pole tracking shot in the, you know, the first part of the movie before the epic battle where it shows you all where the Irish immigrants are living in this you know, almost like an ant colony in a lot of ways once again very claustrophobic um, and how during this very tribal time um, obviously religion was huge it's one of the reasons why these two tribes are, are battling over their different positions of faith right um its flaws are the sort of operatic simplicity of the story. We've seen this story before. Um, you killed my father. Prepare to die. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to note that, you know, the book in which this is based off, based off of, they, they really sort of loosely streamlined one of the stories in the book. 
I have not read the book, but I've read enough reviews of it, and they've echoed that sentiment once, where it's not the book by a country mile. I use that term again. Well, but that's what happens when you adapt a novel or, or any kind of book into a movie. you got to yeah. squeeze it into a, well, I guess in this case, three-hour package. Yeah. But the, so, like there was like a lot left on the table when it came to the book. That book is not exactly narrative-based. It was like multi-narrative. Right. It was more of examination of that time and place and all the you know insane characters from, even though his name is not Bill, I think it's Bill Cutting in real life, or... I know he's Bill the Butcher in the movie, but... Well, I think it was Cuddy, but they changed it to Cutting or something. Yeah, like. yeah. They, they, did, he didn't even... they did subtle changes throughout, but whatever. I understand when you're when you're trying to shape this all into a movie, you're going to make some changes. In real life, you know, Amsterdam didn't even, even kill Bill the Butcher. He was killed outside of a pub, right. even, you know, by well, someone else. Again, the boats are firing on the square as this riot's taking place, and yeah. Bill is mortally wounded basically before the fucking fight happens, if you can call yeah. it, or during the fight, pardon me. Yeah. But again, it sort of takes away the heroic narrative out of the DiCaprio character. Yeah. Um, and again, I feel like uh, DiCaprio is kind of playing strong, and Daniel Day Lewis just is <laughs> strong. Do you yeah. know? What I mean? yeah. it's, a, it's, it's an important distinction. Yeah, <laughs> um, but that said, I think that Bill does suffer from some flaws that uh, a lot of uh, great villains do. Like he's they're presenting him once again as a quote principled villain, but he's not a principled <laughs> villain at all, right? And like again, he he would see he he would sell that, but in his deepest heart, he's just a fucking piece of shit, right? Yeah. When any real adversary comes, he has no problem throwing a knife in their back, yeah. right? Yeah, there can be formal, like, uh, <laughs> duels basically announced in the street, and like, he's, uh, there hasn't been a man worth killing since your father, as he says, you know? Yeah. But uh, in the end, he's just a fucking evil sociopath who enjoys, like, weaving chaos and destruction. Mm-hmm. He sells this sort of nobility so well that you almost want to believe it. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like the way in, in The Dark Knight, they're trying to sell the chaos of the Joker, but in the real, if you look at it, the, the Joker's got a very serious and specific plan, right? Yeah. It, it's counterintuitive, and the movie never sort of shows his hand, that at least Bill acknowledges it. Yeah. No, he, he I, I, I just, I kind of resent that. It's just like, you're so close to having a really deeply layered, worthy adversary, but instead he's just evil. He's just hilariously, cartoonishly evil. <laughs> I, I think he's definitely existing on a different plane, but we see lots of human elements to Bill the Butcher. The one thing that makes at least DiCaprio's, or Amsterdam's arc, at least somewhat compelling is the sort of father-son relationship that does happen uh, in the film. I also love the fact that Bill the Butcher definitely is in love with himself. He's uh, Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, like he, he finds himself funny, and that's that's part of the charm of the character in a lot of ways. He is a pretty funny, funny, funny guy. <laughs> I want to get to an element because I think Gangs of New York has way more relevance today than it than it was when the movie was released in two thousand and two. Was it? Yeah. As far as the we don't like immigrants. Well, racism. Yeah. You know, here's something. This is one of the films where I mean, Scorsese had dabbled a little bit before, but that's one of the hugest element. Um, Bill the Butcher is a nativist. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump is a nativist. 
Yes. It is totally attacking nationalism. And the images that we're seeing on the news today, and at least American news, are definitely echoed strongly in and Gangs of New York. Again, hopefully when people look back at this era in history, they'll look back the same way I do at Gangs of New York and they'll say, what was their problem with Irish people? They'll look back at this time in history and say, what was their problem with Mexican people? Yeah. <laughs> Here's hoping. <laughs> well, I mean, Scorsese's laying bare you know, one of the deep elements of... American history is that we've they've got some deep-seated institutional racism. It's been part of what America was born. They say land of the free, but they mean land of think like me. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Uh, that's a really pretty good analogy right there. And, and uh, that goes on to this day. The, 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 the shape and name of the fight and the adversaries and the tables may flip, but uh, yeah. essentially it comes down to mine, not yours. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's very simplistic. Yeah. And again, uh, that's the thing that sort of frustrates me is like the, the, he wants to sell himself as this great patriot. Yeah. You know, uh, a, a friend of the working man. Yeah. It's hard as hard. He just fucking loves killing people. Like, he just loves killing people. I think he definitely enjoys it, but for him, it's righteous. And, like you say, the celebrity of it. Yeah. He likes to create uh, the legend of Bill the Butcher. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, nurture it. Another another X on the board. Another adversary vanquished. Um, I definitely think, you know, because this was more Scorsese's choice than it was... Daniel Day Lewis Daniel Day Lewis is as to go sort of like hyper stylized performance because originally 20, like this movie was 20 some years in the making oh. this is one of his passion projects originally he was going to have Michael McDowell as Bill the Butcher oh wow so that gives you a, a sort of sense of but where where they How were going back they went to yeah with this specific character obviously Day Lewis ran with it but I no matter who was going to play it it was going to be this larger yeah. than life persona but again, it's funny how he Daniel Day Lewis does this again in, in There Will Be Blood. I think they're vastly different. They're people. different characters, but in that he's so big and so evil and yeah. so huge that it, it it's the big it almost eats the rest of the movie. Yeah, you know, uh, it, and I can't I can't make my peace with that being a good or bad thing. I'm, I'm very impressed by Day Lewis, but yeah. like. He is the movie after a point. He, he just sort of consumes the movie. Whenever he's on Nobody it, comes close to matching him. Yeah. Not at all. Like, DiCaprio has just blown the fuck off the screen, I think. Anytime they're sharing. Uh, there are moments where DiCaprio starts to hold his own, but in no ways is he's going to out-alpha Daniel uh, Bill the Butcher. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. DiCaprio's performance is a little more subtle mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. I mean, his motivations... Uh, aren't that deep a lot of like his is more like the revenge story he does have his own sort of rebirth after he's brutally beaten but uh, I want to talk about the book and action sequences okay because well first of all Liam Neeson stop playing this role <laughs> okay how many times has he played this sort of like stoic you know father figure who needs to who die, you know establishes the greatness in the character and then dies and needs to be avenged. It's happened a fucking lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but that's fine. I thought it was a weird thing for Scorsese to choose the weird zit-panning jitter effect during that first opening fight sequence. Why? He used the same sort of effect in Raging Bull. Uh, How he does the fight sequences. I know he bases it off some sort of battle from a 
1920s or 1930s samurai film, I think. But a lot of the time, and especially in his previous specific gangster movies, yeah. there is a frank honesty to how the violence is portrayed. Yeah. And in a way, he kind of, by, by drawing you out of it, dilutes the violence a little bit. That goes away in the, sec- the, the, the last confrontation, which is yeah. you know much uglier. And I guess you do so see the snow literally start white, slowly turn red yeah. over the course of the battle. Uh, but... It, I kind of felt when I was watching it this time, it was like he was trying to do his like Saving Private Ryan opening, you know, because okay. uh, that was sort of popularized a little bit by that. And well, we that start, Braveheart, yeah. yeah, and then we start to see like the the green grass shaky cam, born identity style fight coming on later on. Uh, I think he speeds up the, the 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 speed of the film more than anything, but it's a, it's a technique that he used in. Raging Bull. I guess I will say then that I prefer the frankness of the violence in a movie like Casino or Goodfellas, yeah. where you know, like Sam Jackson. Spoilers: Sam Jackson gets killed in yeah. Goodfellas. The way he is just fucking obliterated in one long camera shot. You just see it go down. And you're like, oh shit. Yeah. Uh, the 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 style kind of hides the violence, and I'm not used to Scorsese hiding the violence. I guess. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um. Well, I mean, at the end, when, it does when, when, when Butcher Bill gets his due, obviously they bring the red. <laughs> and it's not like a bloodless movie. You're constantly seeing characters um, There's show some up pretty jarring scenes of violence in that opening battle sequence. I think it's just, it, it's done very quickly. It doesn't linger. There is, a, there's a lot of it. I mean, there are cheeks ripped out. There are eyes just getting gouged Henry Thomas has a particularly grisly fate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I'm not saying that he's spared on the violence, but those two scenes that kind of bookend the movie uh, were, were stylistically... I'm even talking about the opening battle, though. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right, anyways, continue. They're just sort of stylistically a different approach than we've seen from Scorsese. Okay. I know the choice of music, the first time I saw this film, I thought it was weird during that battle sequence. The Peter Gabriel score just seemed... A little happier than you'd expect? I don't know happier, but it just seemed a, a tad off. At the same time, it wasn't as melodramatic as, as I'd used to with right. other sort of epics like that when they did those prolonged battle sequences. I honestly would have taken the music out. Right. But, once Just again, let it be the blood and thunder of the yeah, battle itself. Yeah, but, you know, there's a reason why Martin Scorsese is sitting at home thinking about his next movie and yeah. I'm on my Christmas break. I, I find myself like uh, wishing that Brendan Gleeson and John C. Riley had more to do in the movie. They kind of uh, show up and they disappear. But at the same time, like who says no to Scorsese? Uh, <laughs> you I, want I, me to? You want me to work on your movie Gangs in New York for a week? Hell yeah! <laughs> Shit, I'm all over that, right? But did it need? Gleeson has a better, bigger role than. Yeah. Yeah. But we again, they they set a bunch of false adversaries, right? John C. Riley's corrupt cop is sent to take care of DiCaprio, and of course, he, it's not going to go anywhere. Gleason is set up as a big adversary to Butcher, but it's not going to go anywhere because the movie's about DiCaprio and Daniel yeah. Day Lewis having this fight. So, I mean, if you know story structure at all, you you know these guys aren't going to solve the problem, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a cl- it's done in a much clumsier way, I think, in in in, in Man's Michael Mann's Collateral. Okay. Where there's just like all these obstacles put in the plot that we know is about you know, Jamie Foxx and, and Tom Cruise navigating the night. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be about them coming to a head. Anything to the side of that is a distraction. Yeah, and and in a way that's true here in Gangs of New York, but I think Gangs of New York has much more color and scale to it. 
I love the attention to detail of this universe. Yeah. From like from the music to the mud on down. Um, once again, this is a gorgeous film to look at, if anything. Yeah. Um, they did a lot of his a lot of research with this movie, from the clothes to the different kinds of accents, um, to even some of the language they use. Yeah. You can clearly tell that a lot of love was put into this movie, and that's I think one thing that elevates it from your better than average ro- romantic, violent epic. Yeah. Um, I can't quite put my finger on it why it makes it a lesser Scorsese film because in some regards I'm, I am going to agree with you that um, it we, we, there's a certain familiarity with it it was an easy choice for him I think yeah, like, yeah. he doesn't love these characters that, that's I think one thing I, I, I would argue like he loves the people in Goodfellas he loves the people in Last Temptation of Christ. Yeah. He loves the people in even bringing out the dead. Yeah. For some reason, there's just you don't a, feel the love as much. A, a distance with all three of the of the characters, and I think that's just one thing that hurts the movie. It's still very very good. It it you know it's a great three hours. I never felt bored by it. And it I've seen it, it's a fast three hours. Yeah. That's a, there's two movies. Like, the same thing with Wolf of Wall Street. It, like, Wolf yeah. of Wall Street is a three-hour movie, but it, it it moves. Yeah. And Scorsese is really deft at that. Yeah. At giving you a three-hour movie that doesn't make your ass feel numb. Yeah. And that's not an easy thing to pull off. Exactly. Um, no, I agree with you. It's not his It's not his best work, but, like, again, even Lester Scorsese is a better-than-average movie. So yeah. I, I feel like I've, in my typical fashion with the directors I love, have sort of focused on all the stuff that I didn't like in the movie yeah. uh, I completely endorse Gangs of New York it's a completely entertaining movie um, but it's it's him examining one of you know the seven sins this one of vengeance yeah. that's I think that's what, where Scorsese is coming at least from that from that religious angle and an eye for an eye leaving the world blind yes 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 uh, and it's the dangers of what happens when you follow through with that sin I mean yes granted DiCaprio and Diaz live happily ever after at the end of the movie, but so much death yeah. has happened because of and the death revenge. isn't done just because Bill the Butcher is done. Yeah, we're on like we're on the cusp of the Civil War. Right? Yeah, yeah. America is built on blood. Yeah, and that's kind of the thesis of uh, Gangs of New York, and I think we kind of all knew that, but it sure made for some entertaining cinema. I love the juxtaposition between their fight uh, and the draft. Um, Raid, if yeah. you will, or the or the draft riot—that's the yeah. word. Um, I think that was even even from a writer standpoint, that's it's it's so well executed. Yeah. Um, what's the actor who's in The Walking Dead who, who's part of DiCaprio's posse? Lawrence Gilliard Jr. Yes, thank you. The actor that Lee was talking about was Lawrence Gilliard Jr. I'm sorry, I couldn't remember that. He was Bob on The Walking Dead. I know yes. exactly who you're talking about. Yeah. Um. Even though his character doesn't says a, a whole bunch, he's given a narrative and love and care mm-hmm. uh, in that arc. Because, uh, once again, showing how awful and racist America America's history is. The, I think the bullet point is that we we see flaws in Gangs yeah. of New York, but the yeah. flaws do not sink the ship at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think that like he's Sir says he's made such perfect delicious pieces of cinema in the past that again because we're putting him up on this this pedestal <laughs> well here's the thing when you make essentially the quintessential gangster film and then you keep uh, making gangster films all other that. film is just going to be one degree se- 
separated from that. So it, it's really hard. Like, Gangs of New York is a great historical gangster film. Be like if Spielberg made another shark movie, right? Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of made the shark movie, dude. Yeah. But, uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> That's how you know it's an adventure. You've tried to forget the past for so long. Maybe it's time to try and remember. The story's not over yet. This Thanksgiving, Academy Award-winning director Martin Scorsese invites you on an incredible journey. Stop that child! Once upon a time, I met a boy named Hugo Cabret. You searched to find a secret message. I need to know what this means. And how that message lit his way. All the way home. Hugo. So, Martin Scorsese kid movie? Yep. Uh, I Such was, a wonderful choice. I was watching uh, the special features on Hugo, actually, earlier today, and uh, at the time he was making the movie, uh, one of his daughters was 12 years old, yep. and he realized like how few of his films he could show her. Mm-hmm. And would a 12-year-old girl be interested in Kundun? That's the other you know PG movie that we, we were talking about, yep. and, and maybe some of his documentaries, but would she be interested in that? So... Uh, Scorsese had said, you know, because he, I think he leans into the fact that he's an auteur director, he can yeah. do any style, maybe he should do a kid's movie. Yeah. And somebody brought this book, the, the Hugo, The Secret Life of Hugo Cabri, I think it's called, yeah. uh, put it in front of him, and yes. Now, it's hard not to think that that really attracted Scorsese to it was the sort of history of cinema. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the main characters we discover is a great and lost Filmmaker of the silent Georges Melies, the man who's sort of credited credited as being the sort of the inventor of special effects in film. Uh, ben Kingsley plays the character, and he's really crusty at yeah. first. And uh, uh, I think uh, it is this sort of history of film foundation and yeah. the vis- hard visual foundation of the book, combined with the idea of actively using 3D to help tell the story. Yes. As I talked about in our introduction, he wasn't making a 3D movie for the sake of making a 3D movie. He was trying to help the story with the 3D. And I really wish the version I had isn't in 3D. It's still a very beautiful and watchable movie without it. But like, I, I feel those shots that were designed for 3D being less effective because they're not. That's... That's how well-designed the 3D component to the movie is. That's not a slight against the movie, necessarily. Yeah. It's just, uh, that's, that's the way i got to watch it. Um, for all of that, because as much as I maybe be a film freak, <laughs> I don't know if you noticed that I like films. <laughs> no, 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 no. That no. came up. It's not that which I connected to with Hugo. To be honest... I'm sort of snobby in that my film literacy largely has to do with films that have been made whilst I've been alive. Yes. The farther backwards you go from 1976, the less likely I have anything to say about the film. Yes. And I think that's fairly... You've typical. seen A Trip to the Moon, though, right? Oh, yeah, of course. But, yeah. I mean, I don't... I, if I was to review A Trip to the Moon, I couldn't give you a chapter and verse on what that actor's doing or where they went or okay. what's that. Or, you know, I can sort of appreciate the technical filmmaking, but I maybe wouldn't have known that this was the first time that X was used in film. Yeah. Scorsese does. He's fascinated by that. Yeah. And he also litters the background with very famous 
figures of history that sort yeah. of happened to pass through the train station, right? Yeah. All of that, I mean, from a production standpoint, absolutely wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but for all of his fascination with the history of film, because I don't have that interest in it, what I found most interesting was the journey of this boy mm-hmm. who loses a family and has to find another one. Yep. And in the meantime, he's this orphaned boy living his life in this train station inside the clockworks of this huge, richly designed clock. You were talking about how they don't build sets anymore. Yeah. They built the shit out of Hugo. Yeah. Even though the famous opening tracking shot is largely uh, achieved... CGI. ...in CGI, there were amazing, meticulous sets built for Hugo. Yep. This was a huge project. Mm. So huge, in fact, that it's been one of... Scorsese's first, well, not first, but one of his very few kind of flops financially. It got nominated for almost more than any Oscars than any film that year. Yeah. But it also lost money theatrically. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. too bad, though, because it's a wonderful movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he sure has a Dickens streak in him. Both this and even the previous Gangs of New York, it would almost exist in a Charles Dickens novel. Yeah. Um, but leave it to Scorsese to take one of the one of the um, skills of 3D and clearly make one of the best 3D movies ever made. Like this, once again, he knows how to use this skill set very, very well. I saw this in the best way possible. I saw it in a world famous movie theater, the Castro Theater on Castro Street in San Francisco. In 3D. Like a, in 3D, in a cathedral of a theater. Right. Like, it was... The atmosphere was perfect and ripe. It was, quite honestly, one of the best cinematic experiences I've ever had. Right. Watching a movie. Um, it's breathtakingly beautiful. Amazing story. Um, craftsmanship at directing that, uh, you know, at, uh, of, of all cylinders. I love... Love Hugo. Um, Asa Butterfield is, you know, I today I think one of the one of the greatest child actors working today. He's turning into the sort of lanky sixteen year old. I hope he yeah, keeps... he's got to be all grown stuff by now. One would think. Yep. Um, I, I I find that it's got a beautiful magical quality into it. This and is it the becomes... definition of, of whimsical. Yeah. And uh, even though, like, there's a weird sinister quality to Sasha Baron Cohen's character, as yeah. a, like the the security on the, the station who's trying to catch this rambunctious little orphan who's living off of the the area, yeah. um, he's a, he's an adversary because we fear for Hugo. You know, mm-hmm. Hugo goes through a lot when you know he loses his dad, and the only thing he has left of his dad is this automaton doll that they were trying to fix together. Yeah, and when he meets the Chloe Grace. Uh, Moret's character not only does he connect with her right away because they get along and they're friends and she introduces him to this bigger world uh, mm-hmm. but her having in possession this key yeah. that can activate the automaton sort of lends a level of fate mm-hmm. providence to their to their meeting mm-hmm. yes this is she's going to lead you to somewhere and it's not just about the automaton it's about him finding a new place to live it's not yeah. inside a clockwork <laughs> yeah um but it's weird territory for Scorsese in a way in that it is a, quote, family movie. Mm-hmm. But here's my question to you. Okay. It is said that everybody says that Scorsese's first family movie, it's like a PG movie. We can bring your kids. 
I love Hugo. I'm endorsing Hugo. Yeah. Do you think that a kid would like Hugo? I think maybe a 10-year-old on up, but a, a, a smart 10-year-old. Um, this is not a movie. It is a film. Yes. Kids tend to like movies. Yes, but you can get the kid that can understand film as art. Um, so I would say yes, but they would have to be, a, I would say preteens. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to like young teens. And not all of them. It's not, it doesn't necessarily have the universal appeal that like say a Pixar movie does or something like yeah. that. Uh, it's closer, I guess, to say like the way, I don't know, like the Isle of Dogs is a quote kids movie, but it's it's a very it's a very Wes Anderson the adult themed movie that kids yeah. can enjoy, yeah. and that's what I would say about Hugo. It's a very family oriented themed, warm, loving sort of half history lesson, half sort of tale of this orphan. Yeah. But that I think might have more appeal for the adults than for the kids. It's possible. Um, it is very much a Dickens story. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I can't quite say it that. Um, I think it would be an interesting challenge for young teens. Because um, I don't think the story is like all that deep and complex in a lot of ways. I can see sequences are exciting, like the culminating sequence when he's climbing on the clock, clock, dangling outside the clock in a sort yeah. of back to the future sort of way. Well, not even. There's that whole Buster Keaton, that's, that's where that homage is coming from. The, the chase, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a very literal uh, reference to a film. But, but yeah. have you ever seen the book? The book. The book that this movie's based on? Because it, it, it's. It's in the cover, yeah. It's, it's, it's a big book it's like you're looking at the bible or something like yeah. that. it's supposed to be a kid's book it's like the size of a Stephen King novel right okay. uh, but it's it's very it's mostly illustrations in fact there's pages and pages and pages and pages that go by that are just a series of illustrations the, the text is actually minimal but there's just so much story that's told in a very visual way and uh, if you've had the book my son has the book uh, and you look at it you, you realize like I can totally see from a production standpoint them latching at those images and yeah. trying to recreate them, painstakingly recreate them to mm-hmm. a way that it ballooned the budget. Again, that's the double-edged sword, I think, of nobody saying no to Martin Scorsese. He got it just so, but I think he spent too much money <laughs> to get it just so. See, that, that almost seems like an oxymoron in a lot of ways. You never give Scorsese too much money because he will paint such euphoric images at, at the very least so you just, just say because the movie wasn't sir. profitable as far as I'm concerned doesn't mean it wasn't successful yeah. as far as I'm concerned Hugo was completely fucking successful yeah. I haven't heard anybody even if they don't like it as much as I do I haven't heard anybody say ah oh, Hugo was boring and lame <laughs> like, like the, the charm of the movie is irresistible and like again you see this boy start the movie with a family yeah. lose the family you meet this terrible new supervisor and uh, have to build his own life. Once his caregiver dies, he has to pretend that the guy's still alive or basically hide to sustain himself because if yeah. he's discovered, he's going to be sent to the orphanage which will, you know, make him an institutionalized person and, and, and fuck his life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, even, it, even at that young age, he understands that this life in this train station is better than the alternative that the, the society at the time would offer him. Mm-hmm. It is such a different meal than 
a lot of the films on this plate. It was <laughs> it was so refreshing. Like it's not like your bowels and your heart have been ripped completely out of you as you get to the very end of this film. There is such a sweet, sweet, loving nature to this film that I think that's why spoilers. It's going to ring pretty high for me. Right. Um, his heart is so open in this movie, where I don't think Scorsese is holding you as close in other films. He's pushing himself away so much so we can analyze and view it. We're still emotionally connected to it. Where Hugo, I think he just not only draws you in with the visuals, but he really hugs you tight with the story. And it clearly speaks to the young boy in Scorsese. And it's very raw and emotional and magical at the same time. The Ben Kingsley character who's working at this toy store is sort of this, like, he should be this celebrated, you know, important component of film history, and nobody acknowledges his greatness. But Hugo recognizes it. And Hugo's very patient with him because he's kind of a dick (laughs) for a good portion of this movie. He's got it shipped through a lot of ice, but it's so worth it once we get through all of that ice, right? It's going to this absolutely inevitable place in the same way that, like, Raging Bull was a slow-motion train wreck. This is, like, the opposite. I I knew that this movie wasn't going to end with Hugo getting run over by a train. Although he does have a fairly scary dream about it. (laughs) Yeah. He's got a couple, actually. Yeah. But uh, I knew that he was going to find this new family and it was all going to work out. I mean, obviously, that's the movie that we're watching. But uh, I reveled in it. I enjoyed the journey of it. And again, typically with Scorsese, we're watching this downward spiral, this guy circling the drain of his inevitable self-made horrible fate. And it's like the reverse of that here, you know. Uh, Hugo finds his new family and uh, we celebrate with him. But again, I, as I said at the beginning, the it's the direct references to the film stuff uh, actually meant less to me than the emotional core of this boy needing a family and finding it. Mm-hmm. Fair uh, not that that's a weakness of the movie. That's no. just what hit for me more than, than anything else. Okay. Visual feast. Visual feast. Almost as much as Kundun. But uh, the story is better for me in, Kundun, in, in, in this movie in that it, it, it has one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Okay. I mean, I think it also speaks to his love of film history. Of course. And how it needs to be preserved because that's one way we've recorded our history. Like, Scorsese also is a great historian. His passion for film is contagious. Well, no, but but his sense of history. Like, you you can see it even with Gangs of New York. Mm -hmm. He loves American history. He loves film so much he makes you want to love it more. Yeah. And that's one of the great things that makes me into, into Scorsese. Fair enough. My name is Jordan Belfort. The year I turned 26, I made $49 million, which really pissed me off because it was three shy of a million a week. We're making a name for ourselves. Nobody knows if the stock is going to go up, down, sideways, or in circles. You know what a fugazi is? Fugazi. It's a fake. Hey, fugazi, fugazi. It's a wazi, it's a woozy, it's a fairy dust. Was all this legal? Absolutely not. We were making more money than we knew what to do with. We don't work for you, man. Yeah, my money taped to your boobs. Technically, you do work for me. What's wrong, Daddy? We're watching you bring it home. Oh, my God. FBI. Any kind of booze you might want? No. The Bureau forbids us from drinking. 
in 2013, The Wolf of Wall Street is re released. Uh, it's another biographical film uh, based on, what's the name of the guy? Belfort. Jordan Jordan Belfort. Belfort. Yeah. Um, lest you think that uh, Scorsese got all soft after he made Hugo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> About three minutes or so into this three-hour excess, like, like uh, basically tribute to excess. I don't think I've been exhausted by a movie like that in a long, long time. But I should, you know, it's like three minutes in, we're watching Leonardo DiCaprio blow cocaine into a woman's ass. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like, there's there's a holy fuck moment, like, right away. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned before that he never had any problem shying away from implicit violence. Yeah. And Wolf of Wall Street showed that uh, where there was not a lot of violence to the story, he seems to have complicated, uh, or compensated with <laughs> very graphic sexuality throughout the movie. Yeah. Um... Again, we talk about how Scorsese likes his characters who are difficult, shall we say. Yes. Considering his filmography contains people like Jake LaMotta, who romance 15-year-old girls, marries them, and beats them. Yep. Or, or Johnny Boy, who spits in the face of his friends, who spends his life, you know, helping them. Or characters like Goodfellas, who are responsible for all sorts of death, or in Casino, where people's heads get put in vices and eyes pop out of them. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, the most hateable character that Scorsese has ever painted is the Wolf of Wall Street. Okay. This guy is a piece of fucking shit. He is the worst kind of human being. Okay. And in his way, he has done more damage than any other villain he's ever portrayed. And he never owns it, and the movie never asks him to own it. He asks us to own it. We kind of have to take responsibility for us enjoying him. Because on some level, if someone told us that we could get rich quick, mm -hmm. if we could be this piece of shit, a lot of us would be taken in by it. I kind of know in my deepest heart I wouldn't be a great rich person, but I like to think I'd be a redder, better rich person than this guy. Mm -hmm. It's... It is like a black comedy as much as it is a biography. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to say it's not entertaining. Mm -hmm. But I hate this guy. I hate this guy see from it, the it, first frame of the movie. I can see you can, it hits in there. Yeah, to the end of the movie. He destroys lives in every day and he laughs about it to his buddies. Mm -hmm. Like even like the Ray Liotta character in Goodfellas from the start of the movie says all his life all he ever wanted to be was a gangster. Like that's not something that I can respect. Yeah. But... Most of the people that Ray Liotta kills or that die in Goodfellas are gangsters who are playing that same game. Yeah. This is a guy who's taking people's life savings, who's making people lose houses. Daily. He knows how many people, you know, beat their wives or killed themselves or, you know, ended up in prison because, you know, of these bad investments. How many people's wives left them because, you know, he bet his life savings on some scam artist, right? Yeah. So the movie's not going to ask us to face that too directly. They do talk about it. He says that he spends the money better than they do, but it's a movie about terrible people doing terrible things, and the, the sugar that helps the medicine go down is that it is undeniably kind of fun and hilarious and funny while you're watching it just because of the pure, insane excess of it. But I can't, like... 
again, I, I can't believe how much I hate these characters and uh, how after three hours of sort of, again, I'm not sure if the movie's celebrating them, but it or reveling in them, but it's he, he's entertaining us with them. This is the classic definition of one of the seven deadly sins known as greed. <laughs> it, like that, that's what this is an examination of. This is about as the worst of greed as you can get. He is a total false prophet. He, you know, talks about how money is his god. He gives sermons to his uh, flock in his building. Yeah, you're right. This is probably one of Scorsese's ultimate villains. And the fact that you even remotely like him, I think, once again, Scorsese is asking you why. Sure, he doesn't kill anybody with his own hands, but... He doesn't care about the repercussions of any of his actions. Worse than that, he thinks it's kind of hilarious. At certain parts, yeah. 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 Uh, Um, I think a great example of that is when he wakes up in an airplane and he's straight jacket. Doesn't know where the fuck he is. Yeah. Yeah. And then they show why he was put in that sort of (laughs) straight jacket. And again, I laughed a lot through the movie, and the movie is entertaining, but uh, I'm at war with how much I hate the character, and like, I hate that he, uh, for all of this, he does something like 22 months in jail, and it's like a a fucking resort. I believe he was like bunkmates with like Tommy Chong, because Tommy Chong was like doing time at the the rich person. Well, I mean, you just talk about how, you know, the jail he goes to was like, like a resort. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, like, he's the worst kind of criminal. He's caused the worst kind of damage, and he's never going to be really punished. Well, that's uh, it, yeah. This is like what's popularly referred to as late stage capitalism, mm-hmm. and uh, the movie's kind of, I think, a little bit rubbing our nose in the fact that yeah, like we kind of want this when we dream about being rich and famous. I guess this is the kind of stuff people dream about, mm-hmm. but <laughs> it's so ugly and so awful, and at what extent? I will say, I guess I liked it once he officially formed the business. I can't remember the name that he called it. Uh, They focused on more wealthy clients because they wanted to give them more. Instead of collecting a a few hundred bucks at a time, let's collect a few thousand bucks at a time or a few hundred thousand bucks at a time. So they started to zero in on naive rich people just instead of anybody. Uh, You know, but it's all like ugly, ugly greed, you know. Yeah. Yeah, um, it. I think it does follow that pattern of here's a character that is almost stripped of everything, though, and although there's no remorse angle, he keeps some of his wealth. I mean, th- there's that. He remains to this. He day. loses. He loses his father. He loses all his friends. Yeah. He loses uh, his wife. Um, I don't care. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Like, uh, in a way, like at the end of Raging Bull, even though I said that character is a piece of shit and I hated his guts, I can pity him spending the rest of his life, you know, thinking I could have been somebody. I could have done better. I could have made better choices. This guy doesn't even have that. Yeah, he has to spend the rest of his life paying off his debt, but he's always going to live comfortably, always going to live free, and he's never going to genuinely pay the debt. Yeah. He's, if, if you spend every waking moment of your day actively making the world a worse place, I, I just, <laughs> I, I can't sympathize with you. Okay. I can't. Uh, and, uh, I, I, and worse than that, like with Lamada, I like the people around Lamada. Like I felt, I felt like, uh, 
the Joe Pesci character, you know, deserved better. His wife deserved better, right? Jonah Hill character? His best friend that he ends up... Truly, the thing that screws him over is when he tries to spare Jonah Hill going to jail, right? Yeah. Uh, that guy is just unbelievably awful. Yeah. He, like, he unabashedly is just all about the the, the, the money, you know? Yeah. Uh, where can I get the most money the quickest? I don't care how. I don't care why. He tells a horrifying, unironic story about how if he happened to give birth to a retarded child because yeah. he's married to his cousin, he would just abandon it in the woods. And yeah. he's not saying it in a joking, ironic, or let's be shocking kind of way. Like... He believes that to be true about himself, and he's not sad or ashamed to share that with his best friend. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Margot Robbie. Do we like her? No. No. <laughs> no. Well, I, I... She's beautiful. I definitely see her Here's people beautiful. living in a world where, where greed is king. I mean, even look at the, uh, you know, at the Matthew McConaughey... Ma- Matthew McConaughey... He sets the tone. He's yeah. one of the first people we... He even meet. says, we don't make anything here. We, we we create an illusion, fairy dust, right. and that's it. We and he over. corrects him when when DiCaprio naively says, "And if we can make a little money for our client too, that's great." And he's yeah. like, no. "No, the job is to take the money from their pocket and put it in our pocket. And uh, as long as we're clear on this, let's not yeah. pretend." And again, he loves it. He talks about in the very early parts of the movie. He'd never heard people talk to each other like this. They just yeah. refer to each other by the most profane things. They're, they're terrible and shitty. And they love how terrible they are. They love that they're making the world a worse place. And they love how much money they're making while doing it. And he's there for a day and he says, that was it. I'm hooked. I loved it. Yeah. yeah. No, he's once again showing one of the like, primal ugly sides of humanity of the human condition in this way and examining when your main belief is greed the, this is the community that you will create these are the people you objectify not only women but also like other human beings like, like the people that he throws against that target board Oh, yeah, midget tossing. Um, yeah, like, I, I do think we're supposed to be, A, laughing, but be horrified by what you're hearing. Yeah. Like, it, it is sheer profanity in a lot of ways. Like, even the F-bombs, and there are a lot of F-bombs <laughs> dropped. There are some conversations that are just painful to hear because they're talking about another human being. In its best moments, yeah. it reminds me of the gallows humor of, like, Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. Yeah. And that it's just so awful that you have to laugh or it's like laugh yeah. or cry. <laughs> like just yeah. the holy shit level of the excess. Yeah. And again, like the, the scene where he's so whacked out on clay, quaaludes that he yeah. can't actually get into his car. Yeah. He's literally crawling on the ground. Yeah. Objectively funny. <laughs> like it's a funny sequence. And I got to give mad props to DiCaprio. I to be absolutely He earned willing. his nomination for this movie. Yeah. I'll say that. Completely willing to debase himself. You know, willing not not scared to show us this guy as an ugly person. You know, Um, I'm I'm amazed at how sustained and and entertaining it can be for three hours, considering how I hate everybody. It's an exhausting aesthetically visual movie. Like there is just too much sex, (laughs) too much drugs, too just too much vulgarity. But a good movie. No, it's it, it it's great. Like I said, I've I, 
I was so exhausted by the end of this movie each yeah. time. I mean, and uh, I guess the question becomes, I mean, I was entertained by it, I laughed, uh, I, I learned this sort of uniquely American story. If yeah. there is a better symbol for capitalism than Donald Trump, then it's this guy, right? <laughs> like, this is, this is late-stage capitalism at its worst. This is, what, this is what unabashed, unhinged greed leads to. This is, mm-hmm. this is the end of that particular rainbow. Yeah. One asshole spending money on ludicrous things, and to a point where he doesn't even get joy out of it afterwards. He's so whacked out. Yeah. I mean, I a better end of the story would be that he would have killed himself with the drugs. But after the again hilarious business with the yacht and the helicopter or the plane, sorry, <laughs> being destroyed, uh, that sort of shakes him into sobriety. Yeah. But by the time he's shaken into sobriety, he's so deep into the snake pit that there ain't no crawling out of it. Yeah. And again, there's no end to this greed. There's no point where he's going to say, you know, I've made, let's say, let's pick a number, let's say, I have $750 million. Yeah. That's enough. <laughs> you know, when? There's no fucking when, right? What kills me. Like it would he, be better if I had, you know, $850 million. What kills me is like he was given an out halfway through the movie where he would have spent, what, six months in jail? And even then it would have been not been a... And again, his... A easy, easy time for him. He breached the cooperation deal. He was right. supposed to cooperate and turn in his buddies. He tried to sneak it. Well, he did give a note to the... Uh, oh, I'm trying to even, even earlier. Like, he's given an out right. for all of this. His father... Oh, that's right. ...brokers the deal. That's when John Favreau shows up. Right. And his own arrogance, his ego, just won't let him quit. Interesting, yeah. Two directors in supporting roles, Rob Reiner and John Favreau. Yeah, uh, I kind of like to see, I like, like seeing them there. And again, I, I think this is another case of nobody saying no to Scorsese. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yes, I will be, I will do whatever you want, Mister Scorsese, sir. Yeah. Where shall I blow this cocaine into whose ass? <laughs> <laughs> just, just not let that image go there, Larry. <laughs> It was very shocking. <laughs> it was like it's it's one of those things. Like I guess I, I'm deliberately saying, if you don't like this, you should probably stop watching the movie. It's the right random now. masturbation by uh, <laughs> at the party where I my jaw just dropped. That in the gate orgy. A lot of blowjobs <laughs> in the office. A lot of people getting blowjobs while they're having conversations yeah. with other people. Yeah. It's just like there's no end of the excess. Yeah. And again, I laugh, but I am, if I'm honest kind of disgusted I think that that was the intent though yeah Yeah, that was the intent that good does not triumph over evil in the story it's just greed overcomes and no one comes out alive Um, again uh, I keep on saying this I'm a big fan of Scorsese Wolf of Wall Street will never be one of my favorite Scorsese movies but it does sort of have that classic Scorsese approach where you got spiraling narrative we have characters talking directly to us I love the way DiCaprio that, there's that great scene where he lists his daily intake of drugs and alcohol yeah. how's this man day. still living <laughs> and like, like he casually throws his goblet of whatever yeah. and here's a shatter on the driveway because who gives a fuck right? yeah. uh, and again the, the style is, is, is great the fact that it's a three-hour movie and it feels like a like a ninety-minute movie is impressive because I don't know how anyone does that. Yeah. Um, does it all add up to much in the end? I'm not sure. 
Uh, but it was an entertaining ride. Yep. And I don't know that it would, you'd have to have a deft hand to make this movie work and not make like, part of me feels like I should be railing against the movie. Like, <laughs> this guy doesn't deserve a movie. This guy is such a piece of shit, I almost think he doesn't deserve a movie. <laughs> Tell me how you really feel, Larry. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry if I got my, my eyes shut. Anything else you want to say about the Wolf no, of Wall No, I mean, uh, that's kind of what it is. I mean, we could, there's all things you could, could talk about about Wolf of Wall Street and just the controversy of this being made and some of the funding that was, was gotten for this movie. Um, I, I, I worry for the audience that watches this without a critical eye, though. The entourage fans, you know. Yeah. I guarantee you that the younger generation, there's a whole, like, so a whole generation of teenagers that are jerking off to this movie, right? Yeah. And uh, I hope, I hope, I hope they don't see this character as some kind of role model. Because Person's I mean. weep for the future. So there it was, brother. We made it through our discussion of Martin Scorsese. And once again, despite how negative I was in a lot of these, these reviews, I love Scorsese. You're a negative, negative nearly man. B- 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 believe. I mean, I'm harshest on the ones I love. Like, yeah. so, listen to the Coen Brothers episode. Okay. <laughs> you know, like, it's just like, <laughs> are you sure they're your favorite <laughs> filmmakers? Like, yes, yeah. yes, I am. Um, but yeah, please. What well, was your least favorite of these six Scorsese oh, pictures? Man, I'm not this couldn't is have like been easy. Sophie's Choice times six. <laughs> okay, well, I think we're not going to match, but whatevs. Okay. <laughs> I can't believe I'm putting Mean Streets at number six. Okay. Um, it's just that this is baby Scorsese, and he's just finding his feet. You can tell he's a, a highly talented filmmaker. Um, I love the sets of this movie. They're so claustrophobic, and the use of red. That was one thing I forgot to mention you know, when we first talked about it. This is him, you know, sort of acknowledging and arriving at the world of, hey, I'm a talent to behold. But you can just see that, you know, the training wheels are sort of still on right. with Martin Scorsese. That's at number six. Number five, I have the narratively challenged Kundun that is gorgeous to look at. And I highly recommend it. You see it the way I saw it. You like, take breaks. It's vignettes. It's a vignette of a story, yeah. vignettes of story, more than a straight follow-through narrative. And I remember when we did the review of Waking Life, how yeah. I said it's almost a, a movie that you can walk away from and come back, and yeah. it's okay. You can watch it in installments. It almost benefits you that way. Yeah, it, it's another shining example of laws. He sees cinema in a dreamlike sort of scape, and Kundun is definitely, definitely that as well. He thinks films are extensions of our psyche. Right. And he's channeling or working through what would happen if a modern-day prophet would exist. Oh, wait, we do have one. Right. So there's that. So number five is Kundun. Roger Deakins, I love you. If you can have Roger Deakins shoot your movie, you should probably have Roger Deakins <laughs> shoot your movie. All right. At number four, we have the interestingly historic Gangs of New York with a somewhat simple revenge story 
which kind of bogs it down overall. But once again, there's so much attention to detail of this universe that you were never, you were always, always engaged. Right. And um, if anything, watching Daniel Day Lewis create one of the greatest cinematic villains, at least of the modern era, on screen, you you can say that he is over the top. He definitely exists in a different universe. But by all accounts, I haven't not read the book, but what historians have said of Bill the Butcher, he was this sort of larger-than-life, Elmer Gantry, huge racist uh, type of character. Right. And I, I do think this film has way more relevance today than it was in a relevance. Or what's the word I could use here? Resonance? Resonance. Resonance. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Resonance. Um, it's very timely considering what's going on in the States. Yeah. Number three, I have the aesthetically and emotionally exhausting The Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> uh, I think everyone brings their A game. We did not say enough about Jonah Hill. He, yeah. Who, he got mentioned for a reason. <laughs> you know, he, he, he was, you know, he sort of proved himself as a He took scale character actor. Martin Scorsese and he transformed into this lech of a human being. A hateable character, but a good performance. Yeah. We didn't say enough about that. Sorry, yeah, but please continue. There are very few people that you could sort of latch onto. At the same time, I mean, that's the sort of great thing about villains. A great villain at some point you make a connection and identify with, and then you're horrified by their actions because you would hope you wouldn't do the same thing. Mm-hmm. But this is literally greed unhinged that unfolds in front of your eyes. This is what happens when you know somebody never says no. Yeah. And it's just unleashed on you. And it is, you are tainted by the end of this movie. I would be sympathetic to someone who said they got worn out by it. I really would. I am. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like, it is. Um, it's also about false prophets. And the false prophets, you know, controlled or consumed by Wall Street and that, and that culture. Right. When these people, like their sense of spirituality, is that ever doing buck? I wouldn't call it a socialist movie, but it is definitely an anti capitalist movie. Right. Uh, at number two, and this is where I went with my heart and not my head. Okay. And I think this is where you and I will lose each other. At number two, I have the morally compromising Raging Bull. It is one of the greatest biopics ever put, it is a piece of art. Every frame of this movie is carefully planned and executed. Um, the, not only is this sort of the quintessential Robert De Niro performance, I, I struggle to think which is better, uh, but Joe Pesci, I think it's also his finest hour. Um, the, it's also black and white. Like It's when, a beautiful movie. It's a beautiful, beautiful movie. Well, um, it's a beautiful movie on an ugly subject. But yeah, yeah, it's also the movie where I, I also started to learn about how sequences can show a lot more visual allegory allegories, especially to what Scorsese is sort of revealing about himself and his own devotion to faith and how mm. he thinks he's a hugely simple per- person and is always striving for redemption. Um, it's probably the most mature movie on this list as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe Kundun is a close second, but um, it's a classic movie. If, you've, if you can see, consider yourself a cinephile, and you have not seen Raging Bull. Put it Bull, on the list. You need to do it over ne- over the next week. <laughs> I can't believe it's number two, but I'm gonna go with my heart here. I can't remember the last time that I was ultimately charmed by a movie than Hugo. Yeah. 
It's one of the best kid movies ever made. It's one of the best 3D movies ever made. It is visually stunning. It is an amazing story. It is talking about it is talking about film history and how important it is. Um, it's the novel that Charles Dickens never wrote. <laughs> um, I can't wait to see this movie again, and I've seen it three times. I know part of it is, is like, like I said, I mentioned it earlier, the first time I saw it, it was one of the best cinematics right. experiences. You have a real personal context. So I think that's how it sort of etches into number one. Okay. But um, that's how she fell, mate. Okay. Well, before I get into my rank, I just want to touch on really something, because I, th- I I wanted to get into it in the reviews, and we didn't. Yeah. Um, De Niro versus DiCaprio. The okay. two Ds. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, De Niro works less and less with the Scorsese recently. Mm-hmm. Although there he's back for the Irishman, apparently. He's hugely in the Irishman. Him so, and Al Pacino. There you go. Um, so and look forward to that. I have, yeah. obviously haven't seen it yet, because it's not been released yet. Yeah. Um, but uh, lately, it's been... DiCaprio. It was yeah. it was it Av- Aviator was first. No, it was Gangs, Gangs of New York, York Aviator, Aviator, Shutter Island, Wolf of Wall, Wall Street, Street. And, and obviously you know. The, and the Departed. The Departed. The Departed. That's what he won Best Picture for. That's a big one to miss. Yeah. Uh, and of course, De Niro, Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, King of Comedy, King of Comedy, uh, New York, New York, yeah. Cape Fear, yeah, Goodfellas, Casino, yeah. So where do you land? Who do you who do you think? Oh, I'm gonna have to probably give it to De Niro. Take nothing away from DiCaprio's performance. Um, I think he definitely earned it with Wolf of Wall Street. I loved him in The Aviator. I think that's a, an amazing movie. Um, but when when you talk about quintessential cinematic performances, and first in a lot of ways, that sort of Stanislavski method, yeah. uh, cinematic acting. People right away kind of go, okay, first you got to start with Raging Bull. So that's where I'm going to sort of show my flag there. DiCaprio has molded into an amazing talent under Scorsese. I think he's really great in The Departed and he's great in Wolf of Wall Street, but he wins it with The Aviator. This, so This is why I agree. I think like De Niro all the way. De Niro yeah. 100%. DiCaprio has been great, but I think that... Scorsese has been better for DiCaprio than DiCaprio has been for yes, Scorsese. hands down. Whereas I think De Niro and Scorsese were playing the same level in a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah. Like, in a way that I think De Niro is, in his own way, as amazing an actor as, as Scorsese is an amazing filmmaker. Yeah. I think that DiCaprio gets better, like, with each movie that he does with Scorsese. And yeah. again, if you get the opportunity to work with Scorsese, absolutely. And yeah. do I think that De Niro or DiCaprio sucks? No, I do not. Yeah. I just think De Niro has some special quality. Yeah. And particularly if you look at, at Taxi Driver and, and Raging Bull, like, yeah. damn. Yeah. Like, he is so committed to yeah. those roles. So Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I just wanted to throw that in there. So okay. an interesting back skeleton to it. Oh, okay. Your rank, as I recall, was Mean Streets, Kundun, Gangs of New York, Wolf yeah. of Wall Street, yeah. Raging Bull, and Hugo. Yo. Congratulations, we've just gone zero. For six. Wow. <laughs> From hero to zero. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not going to strip you of your crown or anything like wow. that. Wow. I, I thought we would connect with like one, but... Uh, the thing is, is if you take any like group of two, yeah. they're there. They're just reversed. Okay. All right, here we go. My least favorite, as far as the one that I probably would least likely watch again anytime soon, 
yeah. was Kundun. Do I think that Kundun is a bad movie? No, I do not. I think it is more beautiful than it is engaging. Oh, yeah? No, but that, at the that, risk that, of that, sounding that's, negative. That's highly accurate. No. Uh, but it is very, very beautiful. In Fifth Street, Fifth, Mean Streets. Like, place, yeah. like, like, uh, like, yeah, it's embryonic, Scorsese. But it's weird how all of the ingredients are sort of there already. Yeah. He just hasn't got the proportions 100%. And he doesn't have the budget to make it as beautiful as he would like. Yeah. Um, but I do have a lot of respect for Mean Streets. Like mm, it, 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 it is rock solid. Yeah. Uh, all the way in fourth place, which may seem high considering the way I was wagging my finger at it, but I put The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, really? Um, I do find it entertaining, but yeah. I also find it strangely toxic. But I, that's the intent, though. Yeah, but I guess because my nose is being rubbed in something that I don't enjoy, it's not going to be something that I repeat to, like, right. or go back to again and again. Um, third place uh, would be Gangs of New York, which I felt like I was really hard on in the review, and right. that I was focusing on the negative things. There's a lot of positive things in Gangs yeah. of New York, too. But I think the negatives are more obvious than we're used to seeing in a Scorsese picture. Okay. But entertaining, yes. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis is a guy who people will remember. People will watch, you know, just because he's in a movie makes that movie a degree more interesting. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's in Scorsese's wheelhouse. It's fun enough. It's exciting enough. Yeah. It's just certainly not Taxi Driver, and it's certainly yeah. not Goodfellas, right? Yeah. So we know where we're going. Hugo. i very charmed by Hugo, and again, not an, uh, an obvious Scorsese joint. Like, again, I think if I watched that movie, I didn't know that Scorsese directed it, and somehow someone hid the credit from me, and then yeah. someone asked me to guess. Yeah. I don't know. It would be a long list of names before I went Scorsese. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know. yeah. um, but that, again, is, it, it's suggestive of how, how wide his talent is. I believe that like he would bring something if you if you you know kidnapped Scorsese and forced him to make a movie for you he would take the worst script that you gave him and find some way to make it at least look better than it has any business doing yeah. or to work better than it has any business doing yeah. so um, it's it's uncomfortable it seems like it should be uncomfortably out of his wheelhouse and yet it, it's so perfectly uh, a, a, a Scorsese masterpiece yep. But Raging Bull is all of his themes, all of the best sort of aspects of Scorsese's filmmaking, mm -hmm. and that absolutely amazing, crushing De Niro performance, just both of them firing so perfectly, and introducing the world to Joe Pesci. And yeah. uh, in, in, in its structure, it's almost formed so perfectly that that structure has become parodied as like, that's how you do a biopic. When you make a movie that makes that deep an imprint, yeah. then you're an auteur director, and it deserves to be number one, I think. So I, as much as I think that <laughs> Hugo is much more enjoyable as far as what it's giving you and the yeah. warmth in it, on a technical filmmaking level and on a just sort of like an impressive auteur level, yeah. I'm going to edge it out and give it to Raging Bull. Here's something else that made me decide that Hugo was one and Raging Bull was two, and you talked about was the movie unsuccessful in achieving what it wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I think Scorsese wanted to show that Jake LaMotta was redeemable, that he was on the path of righteousness and re redemption. Right. 
do you think that that was achieved by the end of that movie? I still hated him at the end of the movie. See, that's but I don't I know if that's it. my thing or his. Like it, it's it, it, then it looks at the biblical quote. Then so in that regards, I think it it sort of fails somewhat. Um, where Hugo, its desire goal was achieved in spades. Yeah. You know, talking about how you know the history of film and saving is important, but also the sense of family. Well, look. Yeah, but, but at the same time, I'm not. I understand why you did it. And we disagreed. We got we went zero for six. But yeah. I mean, I don't think like I'm not scrapping with you. No, about this. no, like, yeah, it's, like, it's the same thing. Like, <laughs> Raging Bull is a classic, classic movie. You need to see it. Yeah, and I kind of get putting Mean Streets at the bottom. Yeah. And again, uh, I kind of waffled on Gangs of New York and Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. But uh, in the end, I asked like if I had to watch one of those two right now. Yeah. Which one would I watch right now? And it would be Gangs of New York. New York. So yeah. that's what it, again, like it was a, it was almost a petty thing that made the decision. So yeah. I don't think we were really that far apart. As no, much as we went zero for six, as yeah, much as the math says that we're as far yeah. apart as we can be, I think yeah. we're closer. Yeah. Thank you for being here for yet another episode of Rankin Review. Yep. And big respect to Martin Scorsese. Uh, hopefully, if faith- he hears this, you call me Marty yeah. uh, and we all look forward to the Irishman yep and there it was another fun filled edition of Rankin Review has hit the rear view mirror I hope you guys enjoyed that, and if you have feedback to give me, please give it to me by writing me at rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Please consider checking out the Terror Table podcast, and this episode of Rankin Review, like every single other one, is brought to you by the feature motion picture, Book of Trespasses. Written and co-directed by yours truly, your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. This podcast drops every other Wednesday, so I hope to catch you again very soon.